Hi, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode two. I want to thank everybody for listening to the last one and giving me feedback. I decided to come back for another one. Sorry about the gap between the first episode and the second episode. It's one of the hardest things I found out about doing a podcast is fitting around everyone's schedule, um, but doing whatever I can to get guests in and get more of these up there for you. Um, before I go any further in doing the intro and getting to the podcast, um, I have a couple things I need to mention. Um, first of all, one of the things I'm doing is I'm trying to uh, raise friend for my dearest and closest friend, Melissa Kipe, um, who's dealing with a lot of medical issues right now. And this has been going on for a sustained period of time. And despite having insurance, there's a lot of out-of-pocket expenses. There's a lot of... Um, uh, care that needs to be in equipment and things that need to be purchased that aren't always covered by insurance. And it, it's put an incredible financial strain on her and her family. Um, and it's it's been the situation she's dealing with has just been an absolute nightmare after nightmare. Um, if you can go to GoFundMe and um, look her up, her name is Melissa Kipe and the last name is spelled K-E-I-P. Um, you can read the story there of everything she's been through and what she's dealing with and um, the financial needs that um, need to be met in order for her to get the care that she needs, not only day to day, but also going forward and hopefully getting treatments towards getting her better. She is a mother and she is a wife and she's an absolutely beautiful human being. And, um, if you have it in you to give anything at all, I mean, if everybody who listens to this podcast gave $5, it would go a long way towards, towards helping out. So again, that's GoFundMe. Um, and the name is Melissa Kipe, K-E-I-P. I will also have a link for that on my Facebook page. Um, outside of that, um, today's guest is Dr. Julie Hartman Link, and she is a longtime friend of mine. We go back a long ways. Um, she is a sociology professor um, at a community college here in town. Um, she's a wonderful person. Um, we talked about a lot of things. I'm not going to sit here and give all the qualifiers as to she's this, she's that, she's this, she's that, so that, you know, it's not like by calling somebody certain things you're therefore attaching your preconceived notions as to what what kind of person that is i'll just let you listen to the podcast um i was really great to have her on she was one of those people who i've known for so long and it doesn't matter whether we haven't seen each other in five days or five years we can sit down and just talk forever and because of that this podcast ran long which was great it was like almost two hours and 40 minutes um of us just talking and it was one of those by the time we were done and shut the mics off we didn't even realize that we had gone that long um but it's a great podcast had a lot of fun um she's just one of the most awesome people i've ever met in my life so without further ado ladies and gentlemen here is julie Hi, Julie. Hey, how are you today? Good, good. Thanks for coming. Um, so we'll we'll start off right off the bat. You are a sociology professor. What is it that got you into that? Like, I know that's a really broad question, but like, why people? Why are people? <laughs> well, I mean, I I started college pre med, and mm -hmm. a semester in was like, I don't want to work with sick people. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not for me. Um, so I just took a bunch of gen ed courses the next semester and was like, I'll figure something out. And 
I took an intro to sociology class and just really, it kind of hooked me. Mm -hmm. And then the next, you know, semester, I took some more college, you know, level sociology courses um, down at Northern and loved them. And eventually majored in sociology. And one of my professors, uh, I guess, I don't know if he thought I was smart or just cheap labor, but he hired me to be an undergrad <laughs> teaching assistant, um, which, you know, looking back, I'm like, that was just the cheap labor. But yeah. me and another student senior year, we got to be undergraduate teaching assistants for an intro to sociology class. And I realized I really, like I wanted to do what my professors were doing um, and teach other people to enjoy better understanding society. Okay. It's so, yeah. always interesting. Um, <clears throat> The, the question is looking back on that, how much of it was, obviously part of it was the course material because obviously sociology had to hook you somewhat. How much of it though was related to the professor, if that makes sense? Oh, I think a big chunk of it mm -hmm. was um, because I, I think you can have good, like I, I really think almost any academic subject could be fascinating with the right yeah. instructor, yeah. right? But you have to have somebody who can make it come alive and be relevant. Yes. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I think based on student feedback, I do that. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe there's some former students listening. They're like, no, but oh, there always is. Um, yeah. I think, you know, for the most part, I try to do that at least mm -hmm. so that even if somebody's not a social major, they'll get something out of the course. Right. Like, oh, this applies to the real world. Never and, thought about yeah. it that way. Yeah. Right. Well, it's especially got to be interesting because I'm sure with uh, doing social, you teach like a social 101 to like freshmen and... Yeah, we have an intro to social class uh -huh. that's kind of, um, you know, the very broad basics of here's what sociologists do, here's some theory, here's some methods. Like we don't dive too deep in any one topic, but mm -hmm. give you the array. Do you kind of get a unique experience with that where you got like kids who are like, especially when you get the kids who are like fresh right out of high school? Well, one of the... Interesting things about being at a community college because right like at a, at a university. I was at before it was a little bit different um, like we'll have Kids like literally kids because they're 16 because they're actually oh, yeah. doing that college now where they're in high school mm -hmm. taking college classes and then I'll have non-traditional students that might be, you know, 50-something or 60-something, right, yeah. and they're all in the same <laughs> class. And, you know, sometimes my pop culture examples or things like that are, are hitting one group and not the other. Right. Um, and the older I get, the more it seems to not be the 16-year-olds who are responding, but rather the older yeah, students. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a different experience to try to get – you know, to talk about like workplace discrimination with somebody who's like, oh, this is a framework for making sense of what I've experienced versus uh -huh. somebody who has not actually, you know, had a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Potentially lived in a sheltered world and is like, what do you mean there's problems out right. there? Like, yeah. what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think most students seem to get, I mean, they've observed enough in life to know even if they were somewhat sheltered that... Other people experience problems, <laughs> even if it hasn't impacted their life as much, yeah. but maybe they don't see. I think one of the pieces is understanding how they can maybe make a difference mm -hmm. and empowering them to, to make that difference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I always kind of felt like that's always been one of my big tenets because I remember going through my my college career and the amount of times I had classes that based upon the course description, I was really, really excited for and the professor 
like destroyed my will to live or ever look at the subject again. And there were other times where I'm like, ah, damn it, I need three credits in humanities. I'll just take this. And then you come out of the semester and you're like, that was the best class I've ever had in my entire life. That was based purely on the professor and just their enthusiasm for it. I had a class that I took when I was going to Rock Valley to get my associates um, before I went to NIU. And I, it was just like anthropology 101. And I always thought anthropology was fascinating. I'm like, this is going to be really, really great. You want to talk about a professor with tenure who just did not care. You know, it would. 90% of the class was, I've got a video from National Geographic we're going to watch, and I'm going to sit in the desk and not talk the entire time. And of course, you know the way that the textbooks are, where you got to go buy a textbook. And of course, it's a brand new textbook. They don't even have any used copies oh, of it, where boy. it's like $190. And we like finished the first quote unquote three chapters and we're supposed to have the test the next session. And I said, so what in the book is going to be on the test? And she says, you know, I'll figure that out. I haven't even opened the book yet. And you're like. <laughs> yeah, that's not an ideal experience. No. Um, and I teach anthropology as well. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. Can I so, take your class? <laughs> yeah, you should. It's fun. Um, the, any, any, and I will say too, um, I try never to show, especially long video clips, mm -hmm. very often because that's not what class time is for. That's right. what technology is for. Yeah. Um, today, there's always some type of online learning system where mm -hmm. I can just post links and I post a lot of stuff of like, hey, they just found the skeletal remains in this place and here's what it tells us and, you know, add stuff in. Um, so students can get that on their own time. Mm -hmm. And then in class, I mean... I try most of its discussion, mm -hmm. really. I have students assigned to ask questions about the material and get us talking. And like this week in anthropology, we were talking about the environment and sustainability and how people's culture impacts how they view right. the natural world. Yeah. And we just talked about examples and, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um... I, we were talking about this uh, just before the podcast started, um, and I guess I'll just land the bombshell. To those of you who are listening, Julie, Julie's a vegan, and uh, the only and now they're turning off your podcast. Yeah, everybody's now. just like, "Oh fuck this bullshit." Um, but the reason we were talking about that is that it, it's always interesting in college, especially when you have somebody for the younger students, not like the returning, like you know, the Chevy Chase in the show community where they've been going to community right. college for fifteen years because they have nothing better to do. Um, is, you know, the young people who, and I went through this as well, who go off to college out of high school, even though I didn't go directly, there was, I had a couple year gap because I'm smart apparently. And, you know, the first time they had, I guess what you would call today, you would call like the politically woke moment where they're like, oh, the world is different now. And I think a lot of times, and this isn't like, I, I don't in any way, shape or form think this is exclusive to anybody who's left-leaning or right-leaning at all. I don't at all. Um, they, But they kind of come out with that, like like I said, politically woke. What, what would be the best way to put it? Um, self-sanctimonious, self-righteous, in your face. I mean, I, we've all been yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times when an idea is new to you, you forget it's maybe not a new idea right yeah. um, a lot of people think they've discovered something yeah and it's like no that's kind of been around forever yeah um and i think you get really it becomes like a hundred percent of your identity mm -hmm. and i think as you get you know um and i don't necessarily think it's just young people i think it's just that 
for a lot of younger people, it's the first time they're having that. Yeah, that's true. Um, Because I've certainly met some sanctimonious middle-aged folks as well. No. (laughs) Um, I refuse to believe that. But, you know, I think think when an idea is new, you get really like, everyone must know about this. Yeah. um, And very preachy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you get a little uh, longer in the tooth, you start to realize that, for one... Life is more shades of gray. Yeah. Um, you know, there are not actually evil and good people, but just people <laughs> right. who sometimes do some great things mm-hmm. and sometimes do some bad things. Right. Sometimes the same people do both great and bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you get a little bit more chill about some of these things. And that doesn't mean that you're not still like an activist or you're not still pushing for change. I right. think it just looks different. Well, I think there's a, you maybe go from, just like you were saying, um, believing that everybody needs to hear about this versus, you know, maybe tactfully there's better ways to, right. you know, because I, I sort of experienced that myself. I would, for a period of time there, I was sort of like in my, you know, my politically woke moment and I didn't have a problem screaming in somebody's face. You're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. And eventually, you know, you realize like, you know, I'm not winning anybody over. No, I'm just kind of being a prick. <laughs> when somebody calls me an idiot, I usually shut down and get pretty defensive. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that's probably not a good tactic of, yeah. of convincing anyone of anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the vegan thing, I kind of say, you know, when I cook a really awesome vegan meal for someone, that probably does a lot more to make them open to yeah. the idea yeah. um, than, you know, sitting them down clockwork orange style and making them watch slaughterhouse video um, oh god i can't watch those things <laughs> yeah um how many times in your life have you been asked are you getting enough protein oh god <laughs> you know and i i like to remind people i made us a, a whole other human being mm-hmm. just fine <laughs> while vegan like right. i created life and grew it mm-hmm. uh to the appropriate size and you really? know uh, all of that without so meat? without meat what? or dairy yeah I'm not sure um, about the physics of this. I'm going to be honest. I know. So I figure <laughs> if it's possible to get enough vegan protein when you're, you know, eight months pregnant. Right. My 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 body now just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with calcium. Same with all those things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, you know, you can't have the staples of your diet be like a bag of Fritos, which is technically vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a good. Right. Yeah. That's not good for anybody. Right. But you know, if you're eating a varied diet you're probably going to be okay yeah <clears throat> where, did, where did that start for you because it has been like 20 plus years hasn't it it's been a long time i went well i went vegetarian in high school mm-hmm. um and i really i have to credit paul mccartney for that oh um, yeah oh, dropping I, some beetles okay I know. well and and i don't you may recall i was very big on the beetles yes and i remember reading an article uh where paul and linda mccartney were talking about being vegetarians and i was just kind of curious because i was the you know, um, get the sandwich and pick off the lettuce kind of person. (laughs) Uh, I was kind of like, huh, I wonder what that's like. And so I decided to just kind of try it. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason that took was I I did it slowly. Like I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to stop eating like red meat first. Then Mm -hmm. I cut up chicken. So it took me like a year from when I decided I'm going to try to be vegetarian to actually not eating meat anymore. Right. Like no fish, nothing. So... It was a slow process. And then in college, um, you know, I, I kind of met up with other people through like the vegetarian organization on campus. And a lot of the, 
other kids were vegan. So I got exposed to that idea. See, you went to college and those lib turds warped your mind, man. Um, and, and when I tell you what really finally did the, oh, I'll, I'll try being vegan moment uh, instead of vegetarian, I was um, getting into women's studies and uh, realized that basically I was, you know, feasting on the reproductive capacities of the females of the species, and that was really sexist. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you can make that argument. Right? Like yeah. if you're vegetarian but not vegan, you're really basically saying, well, it's okay to shackle the, the female cow right. so we can have milk. Um, <laughs> we just don't want to kill the boys. And that just seemed like... So vegeta- is- vegetarian's kind of like a half-ass vegan. Well, <laughs> it can be. And I think another thing is, um, you know, again, a lot of vegetarians, unfortunately, eat too much cheese and dairy and end up with the same health problems. Oh, yeah. The same health problems that a lot of people (laughs) go vegetarian to avoid in the first place. So, um, you know, from a health perspective, it might not be that great. But definitely, you know, philosophically, I was like, oh, I got to go vegan now. (laughs) Like, now I've had this moment. I'm like, I really need to. And again, I didn't, um, as much as I was perhaps in that sanctimonious period of my life, I did uh, give myself some self-compassion in, you know, transitioning like mm-hmm. uh it i i did not know for example what way was when i was first going is that stuff bodybuilders uh, take or correct yeah, okay it's, it's and you know little miss muffet with her curds and whey oh um it's a little oh, that product. way i right. always thought it was like w-a-y i'm like where's she going okay yeah that All way right. that uh that's <laughs> the you know um from from dairy and so at first i was like eating stuff like I switched to a margarine, but it still had whey in it. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, I got to find something that's that's vegan. Yeah. So, but I cut myself a lot of slack and, and let myself kind of make that transition. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped make it long term, right? Because we've all done those things where we jump on a bandwagon too fast. Yeah. And then we swing the other way. Yeah. Because we haven't made a sustainable change. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And so I think, you know, part of why I've been vegan for 20 years is that, I didn't just go straight from meat and potatoes to the next day like that's it. Right, you didn't throw everything in the trash. We're starting over. Right, like, yeah. I, I let myself that's, that's, make it sustainable and, and, and that's hard. That's the hardest thing about change. Anytime you want to make a lifestyle change, if you just want to like instantly, I'm going to do this right now, right. it ultimately ends in failure because um, that's interesting. That's and I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I, I just want to state for the record for everybody out here listening, as we're having this conversation, is that here I am sitting with a week's worth of facial growth because I'm on vacation, and the whole reason I took vacation this week is because it's deer season, and somehow we're sitting across from each other and not at each other's throats. So that's. I feel like it's a good model for the country right. given our polarized world <laughs> that a, a vegan and a hunter can sit here yeah. having a cup of coffee without swearing right. at each other. <laughs> yeah, and not killing and not calling each other right. hashtag fake news. And um, well, the 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 thing I've always and I, I I think having you as a friend for so long, I, I credit for this is that I've never. Um, I, when it comes to vegetarian, especially veganism, I've always respected the purity of it. Like the, just the no, no. And one thing that I feel like um, vegans and especially, especially when you're talking about non-vegans, especially once you get into the, the, the hunter category, one of the areas we agree on is the absolute atrociousness of 
you know, the whole farm to fork. And I don't mean like right. organically sourced, locally sourced. I'm talking like factory farming right. because it is absolutely disgusting. And and to to be fair, not all hunters necessarily fit the category you are in. Right. Uh, yeah. Because I've met some that <laughs> you know they have no problem going to McDonald's on their way to do right. Camp. Yeah. Um, but you know, <laughs> but I think I think there is sometimes common ground mm-hmm. that people don't always see. Yeah. Um, I know when I was in DeKalb, there was common ground between local farmers and our vegetarian group over bringing in a um, factory farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was pigs, but bringing in a factory farm to the area because neither group wanted to see that. I mean, the reasons behind it were different, obviously, Mm -hmm. but um, I do think, and you know, I I was just lecturing about this in anthropology in our discussions because part of it was about food and culture and how Generally speaking, our society, we're very removed from our food. Oh, right? big time. I mean, your typical meat eater does not encounter their food until it's in a really sanitary package yeah. at the grocery store. They don't store. look in the eye and right. watch they haven't named it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that, um, you know, part of the reason I like to garden is is to have that connection oh, yeah. to my food. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, uh, yeah, I can, I can certainly buy greens and I certainly support our farmer's markets and things like that. But when I can actually go outside and pick my own, it's, it's, there's a different connection yeah, to it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's maybe where some of the common ground comes in is, is just looking at food differently than the rest of our society does Big time. And, and the impact of industrial agriculture mm-hmm. and is, the, yeah and i always felt like that those were like the best meals in the world especially being um you know having a family is when we could sit down for dinner and the meat is something i killed and all of the vegetables are from our garden right that, that's totally different than hey why don't you go to kfc and grab us a bucket quick and we'll have dinner right you know, it's, it's a completely and, different and as a working parent i understand <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the quickness is yes. i get that but yeah i mean i think you know i um in 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 my house we're uh well we're we're spiritual but maybe not religious mm-hmm. um but we still say grace before meals okay. ever since you know my daughter was old enough to sit and say grace, and but the grace we say uh, involves you know thanking all the hands that helped to make this food mm-hmm. as a way of acknowledging like yeah this food didn't just magically appear on our plates right, right? there was a farmer who grew this mm-hmm. somebody uh, a worker who harvested it it then passed you know right through or in some cases yeah mom went out and picked these carrots yeah. and cooked them for you so you better enjoy them and right. eat all of them because mm-hmm. I worked hard. Uh, right. But acknowledging the the work that went into mm-hmm. this is, is a very different way of looking at food versus... Yeah. yeah. And, and the connection is 100, 100% on point. Um, it, it's kind of like, and I guess inevitably it made sense that we, we would end up in this position when you've got literally billions and billions of people who all need to eat multiple times a day how are you going to feed those people? And of course, because we live in a capitalist society, how are you going to make it profitable? Right. You know, so there's going to be a lot of like, well, let's cram as many as we can in. And well, you know, let's face it that uh, cows aren't exactly in the Geneva convention. So we can treat them however we want. And I, I, in my past, I worked in an egg farm at one point in time for one shift because not because I was disgusted by their treatment of the animals, just because I was disgusted by the job. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of like, uh, you know, some people were sort of mocking, um, 
Burger King for their Impossible Burger, which I haven't tasted yet because I personally can't stand Burger King. Um, but uh, <laughs> well, and which ironically is actually not vegan, so it's not. Oh, like really? A, well, the burger itself is vegan. Uh-huh. The patty is. There's um, cheese on it. But the the buns they use have a dairy derivative. So as far as I know, unless Burger King has uh, changed oh, yeah. their supplier for everything else, and they cook it on the same grill. Yeah. So, so it's still soaking up some I, of the. I think I think they're marketing more towards meat eaters who maybe want to feel a less a less cholesterol laden option at Burger King. Yeah. Um, as opposed to. People like me, <laughs> we're not exactly like there are. There are some. There's actually like um, vegan fast food places, mm-hmm. not here, obviously, right. but <laughs> not in, in, no, not in, in more urban areas, yeah, one yeah, finds yeah. these things mm-hmm. um, that are you know vegan options for fast food. And I, I always kind of say like it's not healthy. It's right. still a fried you know piece of fake chicken or whatever but so it's tasty so for people out there who don't know you swing into the drive-thru at a vegan drive-thru what is on the menu um honestly in most of these places it the menu is going to look very similar in that you're going to have like burgers and chicken and fries and things mm-hmm. like that it's just that what it's made from is okay. plant-based instead. okay so you're still you could still get like a cheeseburger mm-hmm. um but it's going to be like an impossible burger or beyond burger those are the two big brands right now uh, with a slice of like vegan cheese. I was just gonna it. say, how do they make vegan cheese? It depends. The, some of the best ones I've had have been cashew based. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So there's that. Uh-huh. There's there's a lot. You know, it's funny because I I find myself sounding like an old timer. Back in my <laughs> Back day, in my day, we didn't we, have all this. The vegan cheese was so not cheesy that yeah. we didn't bother. Like mm-hmm. it was like, oh, you know, like you just got used to never. Like okay. I've resigned myself to just never eating cheese again. Right. Um, so now I'm like, oh, these vegans today, they've got all these options. <laughs> I mean, now you can get Ben and Jerry's almond milk ice cream mm-hmm. at the grocery store. And when I was, you know, first going vegan, it was like, here's some carob chip uh, flavored stuff. <laughs> and you're like, this is not right. Right. Um, so it's come a long way. It's definitely, they figured out that there's a market there. Yeah. And They've, they've tried to capture it, but yeah, there are a lot of different kinds of, of cheeses out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are better than others, um, but yeah. Like I actually like, um, Daya makes a pizza that's that's vegan cheese, and uh, my kid who's been, well, she's mostly vegetarian, but given that we're a mixed household, right? she, she also loves steak and other yeah. things her dad eats. Um, but she she actually prefers the vegan cheese pizza. I don't know; it tastes different than a cheese pizza, so okay, she likes it better. But, yeah, because yeah. your husband's not a vegan. He is not. Yeah, he is. Uh, I don't know what the opposite of a vegan is, but yeah, okay. <laughs> he's, he is not. But I will say he does eat pretty healthfully. Like he's he's not a um, unhealthy eater. It's right. just that he eats. You know, like I left this morning and. He was making scrambled eggs for himself and our kid, and mm-hmm. you know. Does that make the grocery shopping interesting? Not really. Yeah. Um, I actually do all the grocery shopping. Oh well, um, then no, it doesn't yeah. make it difficult. So I, he just tells me like <laughs> if there's something he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say there was one time, and I was uh, it was the first time that I was going to pick up a steak for him, and I kept calling him with questions, and he's like. Like, acting like I'm an idiot. And I'm like, you don't under... Like, I've never 
bought steak. Like I'm, you know, a 37 year old at the grocery store. Who's, yeah. I've not, I've never, I've not bought meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, on the grocery list and I didn't want to make him go get it. And, you know, so right. I was like, well, what kind do you want? And what's it supposed <laughs> to look like? Like, cause you know, to me, I was like, well, a steak is, I, I just assumed I'd walk up to a thing and there'd just be something labeled steak. Right. Um, <laughs> And that's not how it is. And some, some no, people listening not. are like, wow, what an idiot. But yeah. right, like I went vegetarian in high school. Right. So I would never have done my own, you know, I wouldn't have right. bought groceries. Right, done any meat shopping. Right. Right. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I, I joke with him that if I ever tried to cook him a steak, I'd probably kill him because I have no, I'm like tofu, you heat up till it's warm. Yeah. And there's no worry about food safety, really. I'm there's fine that way yeah. with my meat too. Just <laughs> well, it, give it yeah. a suntan and it's I good. was going to say, he does tend to like a little bit of blood in the middle. Yes, so I yes. suppose he'd be okay with that. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those where I'm like, yeah, I would just be like, here you go. And it's still, you know, right. kicking. But yeah. Well, the, the funny thing about it is, is um, going back to what we were saying earlier, is that like a couple of years ago, I don't want to say I got into an argument with a vegan because it was really one-sided this man was just very very upset that you know i was i was a hunter and i i kind of told him i'm like well considering the way you feel i understand you being upset like i'm not even gonna argue with you like we're obviously at ideologically opposite ends of this and like i said i've always respected the purity of it the thing that makes me laugh are the people who are not vegan who are not vegetarian who have a problem with hunters well, and it just hypocrisy. makes me want to pull my hair out. Right. Like, what are you talking? So, and I don't remember there was a, God, I, it was going around, it's been going around the internet for a couple of years where it was somebody who had written into like a newspaper or something like that and was complaining that complaining about hunters and why do you have to go out there and kill innocent animals? Why do you have to do this? Why can't you go to the store and get your meat like a normal person? Right. Because it just appears like, like box I said, cereal. Right. And, the, the sanitized plastic <laughs> right. wraps. Cellophane and right. yeah. Um, <laughs> And that's, I think, the thing, and I mean, two things. One, I can disagree with someone on a very, very important level, but still be friends with them mm-hmm. as, as, you know, the fact that we're sitting here illustrates. Right. But also, you know, that, that, I mean, to me, that just strikes me as a hypocrisy uh, that at least hunters are acknowledging, <laughs> right? Like, right. if you're, if you're going to eat meat you can't really have a problem with people who kill animals right, because yeah. somebody right. like you didn't kill it yourself, mm-hmm. but you're still paying for somebody else to do it. You're basically hiring a contract killer right. yeah. to go out and get their hands dirty right. uh, rather than doing it yourself. Yeah. And it, so, and I feel like if you're, if you're vegetarian, or you're vegan, like I, I completely understand having a problem with it. Period. I, I get that completely. The thing that always baffled my mind in the type of situation we're talking about, whereas it's like, when you go out, and especially when we're talking like white-tailed deer and you go hunting, you are essentially, it provided you do everything correctly. Um, you were going after an animal that has lived the majority of its life and its natural environment and it's provided you know what you're doing and you're ethical, is having a, probably the cleanest, quickest death that species can expect versus an animal that was raised in extremely horrible conditions, right. fed absolute crap and antibiotics and all this stuff. Right, whose life was basically a horror show and then yeah. they were killed. Yeah, and basically got to live just long enough to the point where their meat would produce a profit and then they get slaughtered. Right. A lot of times, unfortunately, the meat being packaged before they're even clinically dead, which is, 
Yeah, anybody, anybody who's ever done it, anytime you can go on YouTube and find videos of treatment of animals in these places, and it's... it's well, and, and there's a human cost there, too, because a lot of workers get injured yeah. uh, in that line of work because, yeah. for one, you know, quickness and profit go together, mm-hmm. so a lot of times people are, you know, working fast, and if you are using sharp implements fast, things get messy. Um, and if, you know, an animal does go through and it hasn't been completely killed mm-hmm. it can injure right I and mean, yeah. if you've ever seen a cow kick Ooh, no um, <laughs> no don't want to be near it. yeah you don't want to be near that <laughs> trying to you know finish the, the job so right. there's a lot I mean that's a an, an industry with a high human cost mm-hmm. as well yeah. that we don't really look at um, but I think you know when you say like if you do things ethically and properly while hunting I think part of the problem of course is that there's a lot of hunters that yeah, it's, and they maybe get more publicity, right? Because, yeah, because there's always. I mean, I when I lived in Michigan. Oh well, you were in Michigan. There were like so many whitetail hotbed, and there were so many stories that would make the news of like like there was a, a guy who shot a little girl on horseback. Uh huh. And I was like, how did you think that was a deer? Yeah, like what you're were you know? You're clearly not good at hunting, but you're out there anyway. Um, those kinds of things, I think, right. kind of make it really problematic and and you know as a as a vegan and as a buddhist i'm sort of anti making anything suffer Suffer, right um but i at least can understand the society we live in doesn't Mm -hmm. see things the way i do necessarily so well and part of the problem you you nailed it on the head part of the problem that the hunting community tries to deal with now is the label of the joe hunter with The flannel and the beer and the right. shotgun. It's, it's beer camp the, instead of deer camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong, some of that exists. I've met some of those people who are like, well, it probably wasn't legal, but I don't give a shit. Right. And you're like, dude, we're, we're kind of representing, like every single one of us is supposed to be representing. You give everyone a bad name. Right, you're yeah. Like you're that, just, you're yeah. just hurting all of us. Um, but I will say one of the things that I found really, really interesting and great is there is also... And I, I don't know because I'm in the position where I wasn't raised a hunter. I got into it, you know, sort of on my own later in life. So I don't know how long this is, has existed or if this is a relatively new trend. Um, but the, the, the importance that is placed on within the community on ethics and things being handled properly. I remember one time because me personally, I'm, I'm an archer. I do archery, which, right. which is much, much, much harder. I mean, if you have a decent shotgun during shotguns, and you can nail something at three football fields away. Archery, you want that within 20, 40 yards. That's 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 a whole right. There's whole a level different of skill volume. you have to have. Yes, and I mean it's different. to the point where it's like it'll be like seasons October, November, December, and it's the middle of June, and I'm out shooting just to make sure that you know when you do come down to that moment, you're not screwing it up. Um, but I was on this website forum and amongst archers, and there were thousands of archers in this room, and there was a very very heated discussion that was going on which had to do with what was called the walking shot, which is that if you're doing archery, should you take a shot while the deer is walking? Mm. Or should you wait until for some reason it stops and pauses? And it it was a very, very heated argument, which I got to admit, I was really excited about only because that meant there was a very strong argument over ethics on this. Because the idea is that if you take a shot at a deer while it's moving, you have the potential to... um, gut shot it or spine shot it. Right, to hit it in the wrong spot where it's going to... Either Instead of being a kill, it's going to just yeah, hurt it. Or, or even, unfortunately, could potentially be a kill, but a very painful, long, drawn out to the point where it's running for miles before it dies and you're trying right. to track it, and that's just not fair to the animal. And I, I, I really enjoy that there's, um, there's a very strong thread amongst 
the hunting community that you would rather have a miss than a bad hit. Right. And I'm like, that's great because if it was just, you know, let's put down some bush light and go kill something and, you know, so, but, um, that's, uh, that, you know, one of the things I'm totally like in a segue now, I, I, I sort of feel like I need to give tofu another try <laughs> because I tried tofu once in oh. my life and it was atrocious to the yeah. point where I'm like, people live on this. How are you not like, so tofu is one of those things that it's, it's, it's wonderful in that it, it is whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And if you're skilled at cooking it, you can do some amazing things. Mm-hmm. And if you're not skilled at cooking it, it can be a horrifying and disgusting <laughs> mess. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, again, I mean, the, the taste buds of a four-year-old. She actually really likes just when I bake tofu mm-hmm. and some herbs on it. Mm. Boom. Um, that's one of her, that's like go-to picky eater, you know, Noodles and tofu, I can do this. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, and I, I even do, like, baking with tofu. Like, I make a, uh, with the holidays coming up, I'm sure I will be making my spiced pumpkin cheesecake Ooh. that is vegan and Ooh. uses tofu uh, you know to make gr- that cheesecake consistency. You know what would be great about that recipe? No pumpkin. <laughs> Sounds well, phenomenal. I also make a key lime pie Ooh, with tofu. Now I'm so, on board. Yeah. So yeah. for the non-pumpkin fans. Yeah. Um, and I have actually made like a peanut butter chocolate cheesecake. Ooh. So you can do a lot with now tofu. Now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. So for the people who have tried tofu once, mm-hmm. um, I think it's probably good to try it again where, you know. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like when, when my husband and I were first dating and getting to know each other you know he knew i was vegan so he took me to what was a vegan restaurant but also a raw vegan restaurant oh and you know it was just kind of funny because he was like you know early in your relationships you will like today you would just be like no we're leaving yeah right early on on, he's like i will eat this because i like her um every every guy's the knight in shining armor at the beginning he's like wanting to stab himself but he's smiling on the outside so you know but i told him after i was like you know that was a that was an okay meal but just so you know like i'm i'm not a raw foodist and you know, I, I do eat cooked food and, and we don't have to go there ever again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, Oh good. Oh, you know, you. I was like, thank yeah, I'm like, well, I'll do a little research. And you know, there's, and, and he lived in Milwaukee at the time and there's some amazing, uh, vegan options there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he was much more on board with some things later. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was, you know, I think, you know, he was like, oh, vegan is like this. And I'm like, no, vegan no. doesn't have to be like It's this. not just raw spinach It's not just all the raw, yeah. yeah. There was some sort of dessert that I don't, I still not entirely certain what it was made from. Oh, dear. Um, it was, I don't know. It, it was <laughs> some sort of ball of something. Okay. And I don't know. So, again, not, no, not to knock those who like the raw food thing. Um, and I have had a few tasty raw food meals, yeah. but... Sometimes people conflate, you know, like I've had people ask like, oh, you're vegan. Do you use olive oil? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's made from olive oil. But there's people that are like for health reasons. Right. They're like a version of vegan that doesn't use any oil or it's all about coconut oil or, yeah, you know, different mm-hmm. things that I'm like, that's not really like 
I'm more like, did it have a face before <laughs> it was on your plate? Because <laughs> if not, I'm good with that. Like, right. You know. Mm-hmm. That's, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I could see. And I, it was a Chinese restaurant, I remember. It was one place I tried tofu, and it was some kind of like tofu stir fry and i remember like they bring out the you know you order and you're like okay because i'm extremely liberal when it comes to food like i will pretty much try anything pretty much like i'm not gonna eat (laughs) except apparently pumpkin right yeah well i have tried it (laughs) that's the problem like sometimes I, i love watching those like um a lot of those travel shows where it's around the world and trying different kinds of cute cuisine. And then I see the part where they're like at some like food cart in Thailand and it's just a giant scoop of deep fried scorpions. And I'm like, no, I'm going to yeah. draw the line somewhere. And insects is probably like, Oh, we, you know, we seasoned and deep fried this tarantula. It's like, no, no, no. But, um, anytime somebody's like, Hey, this is, this is really, really good. You should try it. I'm more than be like, yeah, yeah, I'll try it. And I remember this was, I mean, we're probably going back 20 years. And at least for Americans in this area, tofu was kind of a new thing. You know? Right. I think the Japanese have been eating it for like... Centuries? Yeah. Yeah, yeah if not longer. <laughs> and um, I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And yeah, they brought out this huge plate and I was so excited. I was so hungry and it was like two bites in. I'm like, I can't eat this. And it had literally nothing to do with the non-meat option whatsoever. Like if it was really, really good, I wouldn't right. have cared. Um, so I keep thinking to myself like, yeah, maybe I need to give it another try in a different fashion and... Because obviously yeah. if it's that gross everywhere, not so many people would be eating it. So. No, not like the billion people of China. Right. Or, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might have found something else by now. Those Chinese. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, and that's, um, yeah, it, it can be done well mm-hmm. and sometimes it's not. But yeah. usually I, I have pretty good luck with tofu-based mm-hmm. meals and things like that. Right. Yeah, I was watching, uh, gosh... I don't remember how long ago it was. When you get to a certain age, to like recently can mean within the last 10 years. Oh, yeah. You know, because that's just the way like time compresses in your brain. But I was watching a a documentary about um, tofu and specifically um, tofu in Tokyo. And sort of like how the city is still to this day full of all these mom-pa shops where they get up at like 4 in the morning and make a whole bunch of tofu and then put it in these like cooler things on their bike and drive around town delivering it to be their fresh tofu every single day. And I had to admit, I'm like, that looks really, really good. I can't believe I ate tofu once and it was really gross because <laughs> that actually looks like really, really, really good. Um, where is it? Does it originally come from Japan or is it originally from China? China. Okay. I mean, China's, well, I mean... There was a lot of adoption there. Was, there, there was, really. I mean, yeah, people migrate and tend to bring things right, with them. Yeah. So separating out is a Japan is a China but basically anywhere in sort of the Southeast Asian countries soy tends to be mm-hmm. a pretty common you know in Thailand in China in Vietnam you'll find a lot of mm-hmm. soy based things that's pretty that's indigenous to that area isn't it is that sort of the I think I think soy was an early crop you mm-hmm. know uh, it grows well there and, and abundantly and so in fact even soy milks uh have been drunk there long before we started <laughs> having them in our grocery stores getting under cows um, yeah yeah so that was why when you know people when i was again pregnant and people were like but isn't soy too much soy bad for you and wouldn't it harm i'm like well i would think there'd be like a billion chinese people with birth defects if soy right, was yeah, bad yeah like, they're, I feel like we've had a pretty long-term study here, yeah. And uh, you know, if anything, they have lower rates of cancers than us. So I think, yeah, 
maybe we're all, you know, maybe we should give it a try. And it definitely doesn't seem to cause any reproductive problems because... No, because they're doing fine on <laughs> yeah. that, um, you know, so... And actually, it's kind of funny because when people hear you're vegan, they often think that you're so restrictive. Um, and again, going back to, like, I used to be the kid that would get the sandwich and pick off the, the lettuce. Right. If you look at, like, global cuisine, mm-hmm. there are so many vegan options right. that different ethnic, you mm-hmm. know, cuisines offer... So there's things I've eaten that people are like, right? Like usually the people who are like, oh, you just, I, I would hate not to have such variety are the same people that eat like the same pasta dish like every night, right? Yeah. And, and I'm like, right, I eat Indian, I eat Thai, I mm-hmm. eat Chinese, I eat Japanese food, I eat Ethiopian, Middle Eastern, right. like all these different cuisines that have so many different options. That, they don't want to be diet restrictive, but they'll, they'll get the same egg McMuffin right. on their way to work every morning. Right. right. And yeah. I'm like, but, you know, being vegan has probably <laughs> forced me to try because, right, I, I grew up here. I grew up with the same palates that are pretty normal. Yeah, steak here. and potatoes land. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, eliminating those options meant I had to expand my horizons. So I like, I'd never eaten Indian food until I went vegan. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'll give it a try. Right. And uh, P.S. I love it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that That's amazing. Um, I had, um, that's always happened. I had a point I had to make and then you started saying something really interesting and I completely, <laughs> for, completely forgot what I was thinking Yeah, just jot things down on a notepad. Yeah, that, that requires yes. writing. And I, I found that um, as we've, not that it was ever good to begin with, but kind of growing up as we did in school where it was like everything was handwritten. I like my handwriting was fairly legible. And now like over the last like 10 years when it's so rarely that I write something handwritten, when I do write something, I'm like, I'm five. Like <laughs> this looks like I'm five years old. I'm just get so, so that's why uh, I, I could take notes, but then I need somebody to, to decipher it decipher. for me, some kind of linguist or something like that. Um, the interesting thing, and this is because just we were just talking about Japan. I went and saw um, the movie Midway last night. Oh, was it good? It was a movie. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to try and bash oh. it for many who who anybody who hasn't listened to it or hasn't seen it. Um, it was one of those movies where it was like um, the action scenes were great. And somebody who has been one of my, because during my time at Rock Valley and then at NIU, I was a history major. And one of the areas that I really, really got into was Imperial Japanese history, which is like roughly like 1870 to 1945 when World War II ended. And so kind of really enjoying the military side of things, the war in the Pacific during World War II was always insanely fascinating because, I mean, you're talking like literally the largest battlefield in human history. You're talking pretty much Hawaii to the Japanese coast and north, south. So to see... A lot of those things, like um, the Battle of Midway, like played out on film, was a lot of fun. Um, I really felt plot-wise, they were trying really hard to give it a human element to fill in the gaps in between action. And at no point in time were they terrible at it. Right. There was just a lot of stuff where you felt like, okay, I get it. Yeah, he's human connection. They're buddies. It's going to be sad when one of them inevitably right. dies. One of them will the die. And we'll minutes. have to feel something um, for that. Yes. But the thing that was fascinating to me is the. Um, the thing that I found most interesting about that period that what you kind of see played out in the movie, because of course now at the time we're talking midway, we're talking like, you know, 1942. So we're pre the major use of kamikaze attacks. Like that has like a little bit later on the Japanese start getting extremely desperate and just start strapping people into planes for the sole purpose of that. But at one point in time, there's a Japanese bomber that's damaged and it's obviously going to crash. And so he turns and is aiming for the aircraft carrier and, 
of course, to the Western or to the American, it's like, what are you doing? Um, but that whole Japanese mindset fascinated me at that time period. I just got done on it. Have you ever heard of Dan Carlin? I don't think so, no. Absolutely. Anybody who's listening, if you want a podcast to listen to, listen to Dan Carlin. He doesn't call himself a historian because he's not technically a historian. He's not trained. Yeah, he's not trained be, to be a historian. Um I think his background is in like radio, Um, but he's written a couple books and he has a podcast called Hardcore History where he will pick a pick a subject and he will do multiple episodes on it. And each episode, for those who like long, long podcasts, like each episode is like four to five hours long. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, he did a five part series on Yengis Khan and the history of the Khans, which was a five part. And like each, like I said, each one was like four or five episodes. It was insanely fascinating, but he just a couple weeks ago came out with his third episode on the his series called supernova in the east about the imperial japanese empire during world war ii he got into culturally just um how the japanese had gotten to that point not necessarily like um your upper echelon per se but your average everyday soldier or pilot who you know they had kind of gotten to the point where they had sort of bastardized in japan what's known as bushido which is sort of like their version of the code of chivalry mm-hmm. you know that and it used to be that like you know back during the age of samurai that was their warrior code and you know an average commoner just born in the streets like you or i could weren't even probably allowed to say that word it was restricted for you know the hierarchy is, the is hierarchy, very uh, yeah they're they're sam- they're samurai who were their version of like english knights who right. would spend their entire lives doing nothing but training and um but then it got real easy once you got into world war ii to begin to take this concept and feed it to the average person and make them believe that you're upholding this great japanese standard of the warrior and your job is to die for the emperor and i as a sociology person, I, it, it'd be interesting to see how you feel about it. But it was, especially when you're in a period where you're in the 1940s and the great majority, from what I understand, of the Japanese populace believed that their emperor was part God, like still believed that their emperor was divine. Right. You Now, now I'm not saying this is bashing the Japanese. This is just sort of the course that their history took. But you'd never find that in the West at that point. I'm like, nobody thought FDR was divine <laughs> nobody let's thought Winston Churchill was divine let's not say nobody because I have a feeling there may be some people now, out there now, <laughs> now they do who have, who have different thoughts but you know I mean I think just looking more culturally I mean we have a very individualistic society oh, yeah very much and and that applies to the common person as mm-hmm. well right mm-hmm. um you know we we choose who we marry for our individual happiness and not necessarily because this will bring families together right, or anything. Yeah. and so I think when you look at a lot of Eastern cultures not just the Japanese but others as well there's a collective mm-hmm. culture and so in that not only taking you know oh your emperor's God but just that collective makes a kamikaze pilot set it makes sense right? right because even if you as an individual are dying you're doing it for this greater cause, right? Uh, the collective good. Whereas, mm. right to us, we're like, I mean, if you told me, oh, you need to go do this, you know, and and kill yourself for the the country, I'd be like, yeah, no. Yeah. Um, so I think it's easier to kind of use that mm-hmm. uh, that general cultural difference, and then if you also have a sense of, um, and it's not on you. I mean, even in in England. Uh, you know, it was believed that the divine 
you know, that the king was essentially the authority. I mean, a big right. part of the reason we had the the Episcopal Church split <laughs> off and the right. Church of England formed was because the king kind of got into it with the Pope over which one of them got to be the Word of God. Right. Um, so it's not it's not completely absent in our culture. It's just perhaps we, especially with a, a democracy, you know. Uh, it's harder to maybe say, oh, our, yeah. our God guided the votes. <laughs> um, right. Whereas, you know, with a, a, an empire or a monarchy or any kind of thing like that, it's a little maybe easier to have a tradition of God chose this leader uh, to be born. Right. Thinking. Well, and it's interesting the way, um, especially because like sort of Western values, you know, were much more individualistic and even more so in America. And, in a way that kind of made sense with the way, at least from the white people perspective, the way the country grew as a nation where everybody who came over here pretty much had to figure crap out on their own. They're like, we're on our own. We got to figure this out. Okay. Well, how about we get some people together and they can kind of be our assembly and our council and our legislature. And then it grows and grows. I can't remember the, the guy's name. I feel bad. Um, I want to say he was Prussian who was brought over, who came over to America during the American revolution to train American troops. Supposedly, he was like, a, and I'm to- probably butchering the crap out of this. I'm kind of glad that right now this podcast doesn't have millions of listeners. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm like five minutes away from getting ripped apart like on Twitter. five years from now, people will be going back and listening to your early stuff. God, he was a like, fucking oh. idiot. But, um, yeah, so he had come over here. He was a Prussian, um, like, lord and, like, super huge, like, four or five-star general. Finding out later, he was neither. <laughs> But he had come over here and offered his services, I want to say, to George Washington. And George Washington was like, great, I, we need to train these troops because, let's face it, these are farmers with muskets going against the British Empire. Right. Um, Which, especially at that time, was yeah. a really big force. I mean, yeah. they were an empire. Yeah. They had colonies around the globe. They I mean, were they were the stormtroopers, right. except they could hit things with right. their weapons. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, his, and I, I, I'm a terrible historian that I can't remember his name, but he's credited a lot with the eventual American victory was because he did such a good job, even though we found out later that he didn't have... He was a total fraud. He was a total fraud. It was totally like fake it till you make it, you know. America's first huckster. Yeah. (laughs) 18th century stuff. Yeah. But the thing that I found was most interesting is I remember I was reading, he had written either in a letter or a journal entry that um, he had said that supposedly in all of his time, and we do know he did have some military background. I just, off off the top of my head, I don't know. As he was talking about soldiers in Europe and how you told them to do something and they would do it. In America, he found out very quickly that that didn't work. If you told a soldier to do something, they would say, why? And once you explained it to them, they'd go, oh, okay, and then they'd do it. And it was this really stark contract even just from Europe over to America because, of course, by Europe at this point in time had been, you know, for what, thousands of years, people have lived in close proximity to each other. Right. Whereas out in America, it's kind of like... No, you don't understand. My grandfather came over here, and we've lived on a ranch where we pretty much had to build from scratch every single thing we own. You're going to need to tell me why I'm doing something before I do it. Um, well, and, and it's also perhaps important to remember a lot of the early colonial settlers weren't exactly the success stories of Europe, right? right. I mean, the people that came here yeah. were often 
I mean, you know, while, while we think of Australia as the prison colony, a lot of prisoners were shipped over here as indentured yeah. servants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't necessarily we we didn't necessarily have the take orders right. crew. Yeah, uh, that, that settled here. Yeah, well, so it, there was this interesting dynamic when you look at like uh, the mortality rates in England at the time, like through the 1600s through the 1700s, because it wasn't uncommon for somebody to be born. You know, let's let's take average. We'll just call him Nigel. Because that's a great British name. That's a name. good British name, yes. Um, and, um, oh, remind me to tell you about Giles later. <laughs> I got That just popped in my head. So anyway, we're talking about Nigel. And, you know, this guy's born Nigel. He's at, like, three years old, and his mother dies of sickness. Dad remarries. A few years later, dad dies of sickness. Mom remarries. So you get to these these people, and this was extremely common where they get to the point where they'd be like 14, 15, 16 years old, and they're not related to either of their parents. Right. And of course, every time they're remarried, more kids come into the picture. And some make it and some don't, because it was a crapshoot at that point, let's face it. Um, and so it was real easy to be like, oh, there's a boat going to America where I can start fresh and not have debt and not have to live in an area where there's literally shit in the streets. <laughs> And so it became, yeah, very individualistic where it's like, well, I can just go over there and start my own way and, you know, and then culturally speaking, whereas getting back to what we were talking about, where it was sort of like um, in Japan at the period, in Japan, especially once you get to, by the time the Meiji Restoration happens, um, it was like for 250 years they had lived under the Tokugawa Shogunate. It was an extremely peaceful time in Japanese history. It was technically a dictatorship. But you're talking about a very submissive people to begin with. So it was kind of like, like, yeah, you just tend your farms and you work at your right, craft. Keep, and, keep your head down. And, and, we don't, uh, and the people were like, we've been keeping our head down for thousands of years because you keep cutting them off. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, okay. You know, so of course they very much had a, uh, what would you say, like a pack mentality of more of everything you do. Well, the average Japanese person, and I always thought it was something that was admirable, took a lot of a lot of passion and a lot of pride in whatever it is they did. If their job was a basket weaver, they took pride in the fact that they made the best baskets in the damn village. Um, And, you know, just like you were saying, you know, like, you know, the United States of America was like, hey, we need you to go over here and die because of this. You're going to be like, what? And yet, if you were placed in front of your family and knew that one of your members of the family were going to be shot, any good person is going to be like, make it be me. Right. Well, when you, I guess, mentally expand that to considering your family to being your entire culture, your entire, you know, that makes sense. Like, yeah, I'm going to crash this plane because that's going to, of course, then there's the divinity aspect of it. Like, well, it's going to serve the emperor and I'll die with honor and my family will carry my name on. So... So Giles. Yeah, I was going to say now Giles. I have to hear. I'd yeah. Like for the last couple of minutes, in my head. I'm just all, like, what about Giles? That's all you're thinking is Giles. That's what, and of course we're talking about the character Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. For those of you who aren't Weed Knights, which if you're not, then it, it, I don't know how they got listening to well, this, this podcast. It's kind of like I feel like when somebody's a lower life form, they probably don't realize it. So if you're not a Weed Knight, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude. Just get with the, get with the program. Um, all right. Pause right here. And go watch <laughs> every, every season, season of Buffy, Angel. Fire, watch some Fireflies, yes. you know, yeah. And Dollhouse. Dollhouse. Camp Cabin Camp. in the Woods. We were You just texted yes. me about that. That was a, I, I was yeah. enjoying that. And you hadn't heard of that. I somehow missed it, you yeah. know, like somehow, and I, I still hold a grudge against Fox me too. Uh, as a channel, but yeah. Right, like I didn't catch Firefly until it was off the air. Me too. And I'm like, how did they not market that to me? Someone mm-hmm. who loved Buffy, right? right? Like they should have been just pumping 
people like me with ads constantly yes. watch Firefly, and then they would have had their base. Mm-hmm. Because I talked to a lot of people that, yeah, they're like, I didn't even know that was a Joss yeah. thing. Yeah. And I would have watched yeah. it if I had known. Well, we're so, both- yeah, Cabin in the Woods was the same way, where I was like... Like, I saw it on a list of, like, scary movies to check out for Halloween, so mm-hmm. that was what we were kind of doing, going through some scary movies. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was literally, like, during the opening credits. <laughs> I'm watching this, and I'm like, and I go, I, I, you know, grab my husband's arm, I'm like, it's a Joss Whedon movie! And he goes, what the hell is that? What? Um, you married not, this man? I know. I know. <laughs> he has a lot of other amazing qualities. Okay. Um, and, and we always joke, because oftentimes... When we watch a movie, I get excited about, you know, oh, that actor's in this. And he's like, I don't know names. Yeah. Um, my wife's the same way. So, you know, I, um, I didn't expect him to be particular. But I was like, oh, well, just, it means it's going to be good. Right. Um, so, so yeah. So, I was, yeah, not, I had not watched it before and was excited to see it. Totally different movie than what I thought yeah. it was going to be. And well, they set it up like, oh, it's the teenagers going into the scary cabin Right, it's in the very much the cliched, yeah. oh, you know, those two are going to have sex and die because that's what happens. Yeah, and, some monster's yeah. going to come get them. And then it it takes an, a, just an absolutely amazing hard right, right turn. And you're like, this is phenomenal. Yeah. This is so great. Yeah, I didn't see any of that coming. Apparently, and I, I don't want to speak out of turn. Apparently, like him and the production company got sued over that movie because apparently the storyline greatly resembled some novel written by somebody nobody had ever heard of like mm. years before. And but I don't know whatever it probably got settled out of court. But that's the way all those happen. Um, so Giles, Giles, yes, yes, yes. So I was watching the new um, Jack Ryan series on Amazon, which is absolutely amazing. Um, by the way, they, the season two just came out a couple weeks ago, which is always kind of the... We're, we live in this modern era now where it's like you're really, really excited for a season of TV show, and then in 24 hours you've digested it. Right, you like, binged the whole thing. You're like, now we're season three, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, Giles pops up in it. He plays this extremely rich, very officious, very shady British businessman who's like the CEO of this massive conglomerate. And I always get excited when those things happen because... With the exception of like a couple of them, the majority of like kind of actors and actresses from some of those shows, you, you either don't see them a lot, you don't see yeah. them, or like once every five years they'll pop up in a cameo somewhere, and you're like, holy crap, right? Because he was, um, I, I like to think it's because they made so much money that they can just not, yeah, like I like to think it's a good thing, right? But sometimes I'm like, well, maybe they just got typecast, yeah, yeah, and sometimes you know, I, I always think to myself because I think. When I was younger, you'd think, you know, you'd sort of think like, because everybody wants to be rich and famous, right? That's right. what everybody wants. Like, if you were on a TV show, how would you not continue to drive with all your might to grow your, you know? And then you get older and you know, you know what? Maybe it's something they did for a while and they're kind right. of like, you they're know. like, I have a good retirement yeah. account now. And, yeah, I've um, made my money and now I can get married and. Just chill. Yeah, like a couple times a year I can make some bucks going to a Comic-Con right. and taking pictures with a bunch of cosplayers. <laughs> <laughs> Giles probably does, and Which, everyone gets excited. And yeah. he probably does because he was in. Oh, he was in uh, Batman Begins. Which is weird that it was like only like right. it took like the second or third time till I saw the movie till I recognized him because his hair was completely different and I mean it, and he wasn't talking like Giles where it's the you know like he was stuttering British guy who was in the show didn't um God what's his name from that show Xander he's had a rough road hasn't he. I have not seen anything with him in a... Wow, oh, he's been in and out of rehab a bunch oh. of times over the last several years, I heard. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of it had to do with, like, with 
and I don't know how much of this is true. So again, I'm glad this isn't a popular podcast. But apparently, like when Buffy was sort of getting over, it was kind of one of those. I did this great thing and was really popular, and now there's no work, and I don't know where my life is going, and anxiety, and that turned into several. Well, and I think that can happen when you have a young cast that yeah. maybe doesn't have a you know. They haven't done a lot already. Their identity is wrapped up with this one show, and now it's ending, and uh-huh. where's my place? Yeah. And if you don't have another job or something lined up right away, mm-hmm. it can be, yeah. Especially because Buffy ran all together. What? It was seven seasons, seven. but I think there might have been a year in between when it switched networks. I don't yeah. remember, but yeah. But it was a long, mm-hmm. you know, and if you think about the cast was, you know, I, I know they weren't really 16 when the show right. started, but they were like 25 when they were playing 16-year-olds. But, right. you know, like, they were young, mm-hmm. and so it was a big chunk of their... Yeah, their life all on Young adulthood. And, That's what was interesting, yeah. is, like, every once in a while I'll go back, like, I'm like, all right, I need to see Buffy again. And I'll go back and spool up season one, and I'm like, oh, my God. They're children. <laughs> I think that, and I think, we thought we looked good in the 90s. We thought that was uh, really You're telling tiger. me we didn't? I don't know. Because I'm still, like, (laughs) I'm still two seconds away from, like, you know, I I actually have some black combat style boots that I wear. You can do that, though. And I'm, I'm like, two seconds away from flannel and some nice dark lipstick. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about getting the the air walks back out and bleached frosted tips and the chain Uh, on the wallet and, yeah, the whole nine. That was kind of like, I think about that one. Talk about the 90s because I'm still of the opinion, and of course, I'm at that age where it was the greatest decade that ever existed in human history. Well, yeah, because, um, but I honestly think, wasn't it a lot of our um, sort of the way you and I sort of began our friendship was, as I recall, was sort of over a mutual love of Oasis, wasn't it? I think so. I think, yeah. you know, that was part of the uh, like we could talk about music right. discussions <laughs> that ended up at Country Kitchen, at you know. 3, 4 a.m. Morning, yeah. Yeah. Stale cigarettes and whatever else we were. Cold coffee until they yeah. kicked us out. They'd let, it was always funny. They'd let us stay there all night long. We'd occupy like three or four booths and right. we were always, and there was always like one cook and one waitress there and they were part of people we knew anyway. Right. And everything was good. We could stay, you know, you could sit there for seven hours if you ordered one cup of coffee and keep getting refills. But they'd always get to that point about 5 a.m. They're like, guys, we got like an hour or so to the church car. Right. It's coming. You need to get need that to get out. out. <laughs> we need to clean this place and aerate it. And All right, all right, all right. Yeah, because we were sort of like um, in the orbit of like one group of friends. Right. And then yeah. um, you were dating somebody who won't be mentioned. <laughs> Voldemort. Yeah. No. Um. <laughs> Don't be um, so kind. No. You can be honest here. Honestly, I look back fondly <coughs> in a strange and I'm I'm very much a, I believe that we are who we are today because of the good and bad yeah. that has befallen us. Mm-hmm. And you know, I wouldn't be married to the person I'm married to with the kid I have if I hadn't dated who I've dated. Right. Um, and. It probably speaks to my terrible dating record that that was not my worst relationship, right? Well, my high school boyfriend, in the grand scheme of things, turned out not to be the worst choice I ever made. Right. Um, so I don't, I don't want to speak for you on those relationships, but I'm like, yeah, I, it actually is. You know, I have no need to revisit that yeah. or be friends on Facebook or right. any of that. But just you know, I'm like, yeah. But yes, and actually, I think I remember. 
because you showed up at the bowling alley for what was ended up being like one of my first dates with that person. Oh, it was really? like a group date. Oh, okay. Thing uh-huh. like, uh, hey, this guy likes you. Do you like him? Let's all go to the bowling alley. Um, <laughs> Freeport dating. <laughs> correct. And so I just remember because like you showed up and I was like, oh, because I remember like somebody, you know, and I think I probably knew you from church when we were little kids or mm-hmm. something you know well we both went yeah. to st joe's didn't we yeah yeah so you were a year ahead of me right. so we probably knew of each other right you know? it was like you weren't you know somebody i'd never heard of but right. yeah so you were there i think and uh some other folks that we were all friends with and then we ended up okay yeah yeah because i that's the only thing i it's sort of like um a relationship that uh, formed out of the mist. Like, my right. earliest memories aren't, like, you're first like, did, meeting Like, you. somebody drugged us, and then we woke up, and we're yeah. like, we're friends? Woke okay. up, and you're like, Oasis? Yeah, Oasis. Yeah. Beatles? Yeah, totally, totally. Beatles. <laughs> Let's talk music. Yeah, and that's really where I remember a lot of it, is that it was kind of like one of those, where I was one of those people where I was, like, a huge Oasis fan. I didn't know anybody else who was an Oasis fan. You'd get people who'd be like, yeah, yeah, Wonderwall's good. You know, and yeah. that'd be it, and I'd be like, no, you don't understand. I went to see them in concert. I hate you. Me and one of my friends and my stepmother, because uh-huh. it was like 1990, oh gosh, was that 95 maybe? We couldn't drive yet, I yeah. know that much. Maybe 94. That would have been like uh, right around the time Morning Glory came out. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? Liam, um, I he threw a fit or something. Wow. Um, He's Liam. Right. And so <laughs> he was not at the concert. It was oh, just okay. Noel. So it was like a different... So it was better. It, it ended up being musically better. But <laughs> right. of course, as a teenager, I was like, but Liam's like the cool one. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I remember seeing that show in, uh, at the Rosemont, which will always be the Rosemont yeah, horizon no, to me. No matter what you call whatever it. Whatever it's called now. Yeah. Um, I'm the same way with Rockford. Like, you can call it the BMO Harris uh, Bank Center all you want. It's still the Metro Center. It's the Metro Center. Just yeah. stop. Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> um, which is really confusing when you marry someone who's not from here. Like, I, we were going to the, the Metro Center for mm-hmm. a show, um, Frozen on Ice. Yes. And, uh <laughs> Because that's how I roll now. Yes. Um, and, you know, I had mentioned something about the show being at the Metro Center. Of course, mm-hmm. you can't Google... Google Maps will not tell you where the Metro Center Center is. Uh So my husband's like, where are we going? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's not called that. Yeah. It is the... And you can't just Google the Big Orange Box, because that was its other nickname for so long. That was... God, Frozen. Did you see that video from like a year or so ago of Pearl Jam doing Let It Go in concert? I did. Because I love Eddie Vedder. Yeah. 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 I think I said this on the last podcast. He's my spirit animal. He's Um, he's a fantastic human being. To me, it's funny... And Eddie, if you are for some weird reason listening to this podcast... Feel free to give me a call. Yes, he'll he'll be on this podcast eventually. That's Fantastic. The, I actually started this whole podcast with the idea of I need to build. You'll somehow trap him into yeah, yeah. being on. And him. I'm either going to get him agree to it, or it's going to be a straight up Stockholm syndrome situation. I don't know yet, but one way or another, his ass is going to be sitting in that seat. And uh, you're welcome to join us when that happens. I would like to. So uh, not that I want to be part of a kidnapping. Let me state for the record, because this will be played in court transcripts. I'm fine with it. I kidnap both of them. It's just, I mean, if you're going to go to jail for something I'm pretty sure kidnapping Eddie better to get him on a podcast and then letting him and his magnificent hair go is probably okay that, that, that's I mean can anybody in prison really be like we're gonna shank you in the shower because you kidnapped Eddie Vedder and we're really nice to him and then let him go I seem like I feel like there are there are worse things you can do in the world um, one of my favorites I, I love their music I mean going back you know we were talking about like the the 90s when it was like the great grunge phase where it was like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and um, the whole flannel Seattle oh, yeah. which was the absolute best 
which is funny because here here we are sitting now years later and, and my daughter's seven years old and her favorite song in the whole world is even flow she wants to listen to it every morning on her way to school because she says it gets her pumped up and i'm like parenting done right cool yes. cool, cool cool once in a while you get these little wins right yeah um so i always love the music of course he's a chicago guy he's right. from chicago and right. he's he is a a massive cubs fan and i really feel like if you want to become the ultimate cubs fan you have to become a rock icon first yeah. Because then pretty much the Cubs let you do anything you right. want, like getting to hang out pretty much anywhere. And one of my favorite stories was from 2016 when the Cubs beat the Dodgers in the NLCS to go to the World Series and clinch their first trip to the World Series since 1945. And, of course, it happened at Wrigley. Is everybody after the game goes out and parties and, you know, hits the bars and everything. Of course, Eddie Vedder's with them through this whole thing. And then you get to the point where it's like 3 in the morning and Eddie Vedder and Theo Epstein, who's the president of baseball operations for the Cubs, come back to Wrigley Field at like 3 in the morning, go out on the field and just start drunkenly playing catch till the sun comes up. And I'm like... That sounds like the greatest movie never made. Eddie Vedder, you have like transcended this mortal coil to become this like god that I, that I can just worship in. Yeah, the last podcast, Kevin had mentioned that he bumped into him at an ice cream place. And I just feel like he's sort of in the orbit of my life and right. it's just a matter of time before I, I, I do feel as a Tigers fan I guess we got Jack White so who? Jack White come on <laughs> don't let me hurt you I told you did... but yes no I mean I, I, as you know I love Eddie Vedder but yeah. I'm just saying we, yeah we do have some other did I tell you the story a couple of years about about going to a Tigers game I don't think so. That, that was a, that was a lot of fun. Went up there with uh, my mother and my oldest, um, Alex, and my nephew Ethan. We went up to a Tigers um, Giants game. My nephew Ethan is a huge baseball fan because he's being raised correctly. Is um, has had this dream about going to every single ballpark in America. We're working on that. Yeah, yeah. Same here. That's actually me and my wife's retirement plan is to buy a, when we retire is buy a Winnebago and just spend a summer driving around America and seeing the sights and taking in a lot of baseball. My wife doesn't like baseball, but um, but so anyway, we went up there. My mom had put together this whole plan about going up, and so we, you know. I'd, Detroit, as you well know, is close enough that with a hotel room, you can drive up there right. and go to a game, stay the night, and drive back. Um, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was was a Tigers fan, which was interesting because he lived his entire life in Taylorville, Illinois, down by Springfield, <laughs> midway through the state. But the whole reason that happened was because when he was, um, he was in the Navy in World War II, and where they were getting let go of the service at the end of the war, they were in Chicago and were on a bus going through town to go to the train station, send everybody home. They just happened to be going past Wrigley Field um, when the World Series was going. Of course, the Cubs were playing the Tigers in the 1945 World Series. And so they, so you have all these sailors who have been at war now for how many years and out to sea. And now they're getting to go home and everybody's got a pocket full of cash. And so they had pestered <laughs> the crap out of the bus driver to right, let them They're like, out. stop here. We're yeah, let them. us go in. <laughs> And so, of course, my grandfather, I believe in being a contrarian because everybody was like, we're going right, to go see the Cubs. We're going to go see the Cubs. We're going to go see the Cubs. He was just kind of like, you know what? Fuck the Cubs. I'm rooting for the Tigers. And he'd have a Tigers fan the rest of his life. You know, I I don't think he, I, I honestly don't believe he ever made it to an actual like Tigers game or made it to Detroit to mm-hmm. what would have been their old stadium. Their current Cobarica right. definitely was not around right. in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, but what he passed away when I was in first grade. And one of the things I was able to snag was his tiger's hat, nice. which I had kept all these years. And so when I had heard that, like, hey, do you mind driving as we go up to this tiger's game at Comerica? I'm like, 
I got to bring the hat along. So I dug the hat out of the box and brought it along with and got to go up and put it on top of the dugout and take a picture of it, which was kind of a, it was kind of a neat, sweet family moment knowing that right. my grandfather, who's, even though I am a diehard Cubs fan and he became, well, but perhaps more importantly, you're a baseball fan. Right. Yeah, and I think that's, time. um, a big difference in that there are people that love a particular team but right. don't really like the sports. Yeah. And a lot of times they're more fair weather fans as yeah. well. And so, you know, there are yeah. 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 I feel I feel like you get that a lot more with football. I think people oh, yeah. people who are baseball fans are always for the most part larger picture baseball fans. And then they have their team that they right. you know, of course you're always gonna have your tribalism meatheads who are like, you know, Screw them, screw them, screw them, this team all the way. And like let's face it, at the end of the day you're rooting for laundry. I mean that's really what it is. Right, and and players change teams right. and all of a sudden yeah. you hate them and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. But, you know, yeah. when it when it's kinda like I'm I, this occurred to me when I'm watching the World Series and it was, you know, the Astros playing the Nationals and I'm thinking to myself like the two like American standard towns of Washington DC and Houston playing each other in America's pastime for the World Series and like 70% of the rosters aren't even American born. <laughs> well, and I watched it thinking I finally get to see that Detroit Tigers team I wanted to see in the World Series mm -hmm. in the World Series. It's yeah. just that Scherzer and Verlander and everyone's wearing their own jerseys. <laughs> yeah. But I finally got to see that team because that was that was I was really rooting right. for them. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I and I always kind of get I always kind of get that way. And that's what always one of the things that cracks me up about sports when I think to it. It's like you know when you get those people who are like fellow Cubs fans who are like diehard Cubs, St. Louis can burn. And I'm like, you realize nobody who plays for the Cubs was born in Chicago, and right. nobody playing for the Cardinals was born in St. Louis. And and thanks to trades, they might switch. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, which happens. But, yeah, I can. I still, you know, I'm I'm married to a Brewers fan, so I'm so sorry. But you know, to be a contrarian, right? So a lot of people ask me like, how did I get to be a Tigers fan? Because mm -hmm. I was raised here, and I was a Cubs fan growing up as a kid. Uh -huh. um, and then you know, there, there's a point as a little girl where it's no longer cool to like sports. Yeah, you might not be as aware of this as a guy, but right. like generally, about the time that you're supposed to start liking boys, you're supposed to stop being into sports. Yeah, because that's not girly. Right. Right. So yeah. I stopped really paying any attention. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I, I was, you know, the, the Andre Dawson era yes. was, was part of my yes. childhood. And then um, as an adult in grad school, I was like, well, F this, I like baseball. Right. Uh, but I was living in Michigan then, and I, I ended up going to a friend's fundraiser where I ended up winning some Detroit Tigers tickets. Oh, okay. I got four seats to a game. Sweet. Mm -hmm. So I went to that game and I bought some tickets for another game and started watching them. Well, that was the year they went to the World Series. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is really different this than being is, a Cubs fan. Right. Yeah. And they, they ultimately lost, but you know, seeing yeah. them in the World Series was, was you know, and, mm -hmm. and then they had several great years there. Yeah, like, they you know, did. 2011 was a big year and all this. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of, so I try to remember that like this year when I'm like, and we are sad. Yeah. Um, but the very first, so my husband and I met on an airplane, so we had a long-distance relationship from the get-go. And I was flying out to visit him for the first time since we had met. It had been like five or six weeks of talking on the phone. Mm -hmm. And he was a season ticket holder for the Brewers, so he had tickets for the game that night. Mm -hmm. He knew I liked baseball. So I bought, it was a Cubs-Brewers game. Oh. 
Well, I bought a Cubs shirt. Oh. And I wore it on the plane. Yeah. And I got off the plane and he greets me and, you know, we haven't even had our first kiss yet because we've been just talking on the phone for weeks. And he just looks at me and he's like, I could tell he was like, again, early in a relationship, you you do things because right. you're really into the person. Yeah. Um, and he was willing to not just tell me to get back on a plane. That's love, man. Yeah. That's yeah. Love, man. So. Well, I always feel like, um, to speaking about the Brewers, the funny thing about the division is for a long time it was Cubs-Cardinals. Cubs-Cardinals, right. Cubs-Cardinals. Oh, and, and he hates the Cardinals, I think, more than the Cubs. Right. Like the Cardinals, because they ruined, like, <laughs> I don't know if it was the 83 World Series, something. Yeah. Um, where, you know, like his hatred of the Cardinals stems from childhood. Right. Whereas, you know. Well, we always had this thing as Cubs fans where it was like you knew that in any year that the Cubs were at least going to be decent, which happened on occasion. Did that it? it was that it was going to be it was going to come down to how we could handle the Cardinals. And so every year it was like Cubs Cardinals and every once in a while the Pirates might bulb up with a good year before they remembered they were the Pirates. Right. Um not so much the Reds. Um and it felt like a couple of years ago, like the they they just kind of became the pesky brewers. Like, 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 don't you know your place? Like, why are you <laughs> messing this up? Why are you getting in the way? Well, they've got some pretty good teams. Yeah, and now I gotta admit, it's got literally gotten to the point where it's like we gotta admit the brewers are here to stay. Yeah, like this isn't just a, oh they're a flash in the pan for a season and then they'll go away and we'll be back to Cubs right, cards they're, again. They're building. They're they're legitimately some contenders. Yeah, there, so. last year I don't and I don't know how many people realized it, but being a Cubs fan last year when the Brewers traded for Yelich, I literally sucked my head in my hands and went <laughs> shit. This is not good for anybody in our division whatsoever, and it's proven. Yeah, that he's it's, he's kind of a good player. So, kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's one of the things I enjoyed about baseball. There's so much more camaraderie amongst. Like you can go to an NFL game or a hockey game or an NBA game, and there's fights amongst fan bases. And not that baseball's free of that, but by and large, you know, I, I think there's a lot more camaraderie and a lot more love. And you know, yeah, there's heckling and there's ribbing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I also think that's, and I think part of that has to do with the pace of the game. It's not this adrenaline-fueled... Right. You, you have to be somebody who's patient right. if you like baseball. Because <laughs> yeah. you can go like two hours and no one has scored. Right, yeah. Right? Like, whereas in football, you've, you know, yeah. you finished the game in right, two yeah. hours. Exactly. Like, um, so, yeah, I think I think it attracts a different fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and if you're a baseball purist, you're one of those people where you can sit there and it's the eighth inning and nobody's scored and you're going on and on about what a phenomenal game it is. Right. Because both the pitchers are just like right. dominating right now. Right, like this is a right pitching, a pitching right. off yeah. you know, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if it's football and it gets to late in the third quarter and nobody's scored, everybody's changing the channel. They're right. like, well, this game's boring. You know, so. Right. Yeah. Um, so he's originally from Milwaukee area? Yeah, yeah, he grew up in Milwaukee. And you met on a flight to and from... Uh, L.A. I was flying from Maryland, where I lived at the time, mm -hmm. to L.A. for a friend's bachelorette party, and I had a connection through Milwaukee. Oh, okay. And he uh, sat down in the seat next to me, and I was prepared with my don't-talk-to-me headphones and magazine, <laughs> you know. If you've flown, you know how this goes. And I remember right. when he got on the flight, I was like, there's no way that guy is sitting next to me because yeah. fate does not just put, like... Here's a handsome man next right. to me, right? Like that's not happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when he did, I'm like, all right, he's probably married. Yeah. Like there's no way. And uh, no, he was single, and we started talking, and mm -hmm. uh, 
it turned out we liked each other. Wow. We liked each other well enough to start a relationship when we were in a different time zone. And uh, yeah, got married, had a kid. And now here you are. And now here we are. Yeah, back in Freeport. Yes. <laughs> that's uh, that's what, God, it's, it's crazy. And sometimes you think about that, like um, the past that we travel, that we end up who we like. It was like, you know, if you were to go back how many years, it was, it was the same thing with you guys as it was with me and my wife, that like if you would have gone back 20 some years and predicted like these two are gonna meet each other as I'm born here and she's from, has parents from New Mexico and Indiana, but born in South Carolina and somehow like, oh, we just both ended up working at the exact same place in Rockford and right. boom, how did now that here happen? we are. Yeah. yeah. When I also think about like, um, cause you know, he and I will sometimes joke because we both, you know, had been single long enough. We had done some online dating sites. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and we sort of talked about, like, no algorithm would have put us together. <laughs> right. Which is a flaw in the system, I think, right? right? Like, yeah. they should just put people that seem wildly inappropriate together. Right. And, and sometimes it works. Mm -hmm. So, because I'm like, yeah, I mean, we are not, we're, we're, we're really matched up on, on really core issues. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the things that normally you see, like where, first of all, geography, yeah, um, but yeah. also like educational levels. Mm -hmm. Like at that time, you had a high school diploma, and I had a PhD. Yeah, usually, you know, I, you know, e harmony does not <laughs> hook those two up. Um, and so I, yeah, I've never, um, I've never used one of those sites. How, how in depth are those algorithms? It's like, oh, you, I don't you know. both like Bridget Jones Diary. Ergo, you should meet. I, you know, and this was, yeah. A decade ago, I mean, there weren't apps on your phone yet, so yeah. no, I think those have changed things. But I, you know, I always found it kind of just strange some of the matches, mm -hmm. um, and you know, decoding people's profiles. Right. Like it says here, you're an occasional drinker, but every picture of you has some kind of alcoholic beverage in it. Yeah. So I'm gonna <laughs> guess you might drink yeah. more than occasionally. Like. You know, things where you're like, I feel like you may be putting some information that's not exactly true. Um, Did any yeah. of those lead to some really, really bad dates? Like one and done's like, you're you know, like, oh my God. I ended up not meeting in person anybody that really? I started talking to online. Uh -huh. um, yeah, it, it just did not. And part of it was where I lived um, was really like... <laughs> We talk rural. Uh, it was in the mountains, <laughs> rural in Appalachia. Oh, okay. And so, most of the people I was getting paired up with were like an hour's drive or two hours drive uh, away. Well, you're not going to do that. And, on and it wasn't just going to be like, well, let's just have coffee and see what happens. Yeah. So we, it, it really fizzled out at the we're talking uh -huh. point. <laughs> um, and then you know, I I met somebody who lived in town, and that relationship was just, you know, as I say. I'm glad I went through what I went through to get That's to where I am. It's a very positive outlook to have. But boy, if I could have somehow <laughs> learned a lesson without that experience, yeah, without yeah. the trauma that came yeah. from that, that would have been good. But yeah, and then I met my husband. And okay. I have not dated since then. So. Right, yeah. Well, I, not that I would judge if you did. I mean, no. you know. If you want to have a big love type of scenario going on, that's, you know. No. That's other no. people's business. I don't. Um, yeah, that's, gosh. I think it's something that anybody can talk about is the dating world is just like, like sometimes I think back and be like, I thought that was a good idea at one point in time. I honestly thought, you know what? I think this is going to be great. This is going to work. I got, we're going back a long time ago, like almost 20 years and I got set up on a blind date and to this day I'm still bitter at the person who set us up because it oh. was such, 
an absolute disaster. I stopped setting people up with friends because I felt like there was one time I literally apologized to the girl (laughs) because it was so bad. It seemed, I don't know, it seemed like it would work. Yeah. And then it turned, it was so bad. And I was like, I'm sorry, this person's really cool by himself. Yeah. And I had no idea, like, he was going to be weird, like super weird. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I, I, when people, you know, if single friends ask, like, well, do you have any, you know, friends? I'm like, no, not, I, have, I don't. Not that I'm going to introduce you to them. And, and honestly, I don't really have friends. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> it's not even a lie. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's what happens with adult. You realize right. really quickly that those hundreds of friends you used to hang out with regularly just slowly. Kind right. Of... I have some friends in the sense that they have kids my kids' age. And right. we have good relationships where we can actually enjoy ourselves. You can tolerate each other while the kids play something. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and we have, I guess, friendships in that sense. But, right. you know, not like the, oh, I should introduce you to this person. Yeah. Yeah, I had that years and years ago, right? I had one friend who was like a childhood friend and a female who was like a work friend. And both were very, very cool. Both were single. Both were very frustrated with the dating world. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just give this a shot. And when it's to the point where it's like, a month later and both of these people are cursing my name for ever introducing right. them. I'm just like, yeah, I might be done with right. this whole matchmaker thing. Their, their only bond really is their hatred for you. Yeah, now. yeah. So at yeah. least I'm bringing people together right. over something. <laughs> Sometimes you got to be the bad the bad parent sort of, you know, so that they have a bond. Right, yeah. Yeah. I got... <laughs> this, is the, this is the worst experience and I'm not going to say names and not that it matters because I think I've forgotten most of them, but I got set up on a blind date years and years ago. I'd been like, I'd been in a relationship for like two years and we broke up and I was just kind of lingering in that. Uh, like I, I, you know, I kind of felt like Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights where he's being interviewed and he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Like what, what, like what do I do? Like I'm used to getting up every day and having somebody I'm supposed to be talking to and doing, I just didn't know what to do. So I was like, Oh, I know somebody, they work for the same company as you just, at a different like location so it's not like you'd see each other every day i think you guys would be great together gave me her phone number gave her my phone number we talked and so we had decided this i mean i want to say this was like 99 or something like that so the 2000 something like that so we were going to meet at cherryville mall together fantastic and so i'm like okay we'll meet at cherryville mall i guess so i drove to cherryville mall and met her there and she brought a friend along with which, to an extent, I understand. You're I mean, meeting, it's a safety thing. Yeah, if I was meeting a strange guy, yeah. even if it was vouched, he was vouched for by a mutual friend, <laughs> yeah. I might still be like, all right, I'll give you the code word right. to leave when I've decided he's not a serial killer. Right, or a rapist, or right. just I need an excuse to get away from him because he's boring or a jackass or whatever. And um, one thing I will say about meeting I was really, really thankful to this. I had never, like, I'll just say this. I've met a lot of white trash in my life. I've never heard like what would be considered the model version of the white trash accent. Like if it were to be preserved in a time capsule so future civilizations knew exactly what white trash sounded like, it would be this girl's voice. And then it and so See, I've always had a hard time with that term because it's very class based. Yeah, it is. Um, it very much is. And and I, I don't like to be classist because yeah, there are yeah. plenty of people that might be described by others right that are wonderful people oh i'm sure to but be, but I'm, i do know what you mean about like just the way somebody talks where you're like yeah where it's kind of like um 
the best way to explain it. It's sort of like a white person growing up in Illinois, but having a little bit of Southern in them and having listened to a lot of rap music kind of all blended together that sort of produces this. It's astonishing to see in action. It really is. But so we, so anyway, I met them up at the, uh, Cherry Bell Mall and they decided that for our date the three of us were just going to walk around the mall together and then they bumped into two guys that they knew that they went to high school with who they were friends with and now all five of us were hanging out. But so you're on a weird fifth wheel yeah, situation Yeah this here. is this thing keeps going sideways and then eventually it got to the point where apparently there was some guy and some other kid and the guy or whatever in the arcade that <clears throat> both of these guys knew and they hated him and they wanted to beat his ass but they were banned from going in the arcade so they talked to the girl who was supposed to be my date to agree to go in there and talk to them and get them to come outside to do something else and then they could jump him and I'm eventually I'm like why am I here right I would have left I did very quickly I like did. I don't know you and I'm not going to get into a fight yeah and it was kind of one of those where you usually attempt to veil that in some sort of niceness right. like well and eventually you know and it was like a half effort like Hey, I just remembered I got a buddy of mine who works at the other end of the mall. I'm going to go say hey to yeah, him Yeah, I could really and, use an Orange Julius. So yeah. I'm gonna go. And then after that, I'm pretty sure I'm going to my car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then... And uh, then I'm going to never talk to you Yeah. Again. And the only... It was funny. The only thing I got was like the next day I got an email from her. Because we were back in like the AOL chat days. Right. Um, I got an email from her that said... You know, it was just something to the effect of like, hey, I had a good time meeting you. You seem really, really nice. I apologize so very, very much for how that date ended. I didn't realize till after the date was over how terrible my hair looked. Yeah, the hair was the problem. Yeah, the hair was the... That was just the deal breaker <laughs> that was the, right That there. was the breaker. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of breaks, can we take a little short one? Yeah, yeah, okay? absolutely. Absolutely. Let me... <laughs> you can edit out the... Can we go take a... Okay, we're back. We had to grab some more coffee. And yeah, you, coffee you, is a necessity. Use the tinkle room. So just, I, like, we were literally just having a conversation, and I'm like, okay, hold on. We need to pause this conversation. I need to turn the mic back on because this is another fascinating conversation. We were talking about, um, you know, family genealogy and, you know, where you come from, 23andMe and all that kind of stuff. The interesting thing about talking to people from an older generation, especially family members, is thinking to ourselves how fast just in our lifetimes technology has advanced like we've gone from like especially like you and me being the age we are we went from having a vcr was cool right oh it was the newest yeah thing. When, when you finally got a vcr and, and it, it was the pop-up vcr yes. time, remember that was yes yeah. and um the first time got cable and got like 25 channels it was amazing oh. Mind blown. Yeah, and yeah, you go and you, you realize that you know it really wasn't that long ago that a lot of the bread had to be homemade, and there were literally having a car was meant you were right. Having a TV was yeah. like, oh, you've yeah. got one TV, right? Um, what was what was the book called? You said your dad got so uh, no I got it from my dad it was called Conversations with My Father, and mm -hmm. there's also a Conversations with My Mother, but it's basically a, a journal prompts right that have you know lots of questions that you can ask mm -hmm. um and you know a because part of my training as a researcher is interviewing people yeah um, but also i thought it would just be nice to collect that data mm -hmm. uh from my dad um about you know it's it's questions about what elementary school did he go to and who was his best friend in elementary school and just stuff like that, that yeah you, you don't 
I mean, maybe some people think to ask these questions of their parents. <laughs> I don't, right? And then right. It, what to me was amazing is I'm like, okay, here's a guy I've known my whole life, literally, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know some of this. And he was telling me things about my grandparents that I didn't know, yeah. and, you know, things that I was like, oh, I didn't know, you know, that, and yeah. Wow. So it's really, it's, it's. I definitely think, you know, with the with the holiday season coming up, it's kind of, it was a cool gift. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, you know, just the gift of time, right? It meant we got together right. regularly and mm-hmm. I asked questions and he gave me answers. And Yeah, yeah that's that's neat. Yeah. We, it, it's a cliche that we've heard forever that you don't know what you have until it's gone. Right. And, you know, I, not a day goes by. I don't read a post somewhere on social media that it was like, you know, tell those around you that you love them because you don't you know. And you, you always think to yourself high-mindedly, like, yep, that's right. And then you just keep going on with your day, right. day like normal. But it, it's absolutely 100% true. I, I had um, a humanities class in college, which just like going back to our previous conversation that like almost started this whole thing. Ended up one of the best college classes I ever had in my entire life. I remember I was to the point where I was about to graduate. It was going to be my last semester, and I needed three credits of humanities. And I'm, like, looking through the humanities catalog, and I'm like, come on. Now, this is, like, 22, 23-year-old me who has a very different outlook on life and the world and what's interesting and what's not versus what I am today. And eventually there was a class I saw in there that was called uh, War in Western Humanities, the Renaissance to the Present. I'm like... At least it's got war in the title. <laughs> Why not? Maybe there'll be some action scenes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I took the class, and um, I remember Dr. Penelope Blake at Rock Valley College was, was the professor's name, who still to this day is one of the greatest professors I've ever had in my life. And so get there the first day of class, and this woman walks in, and she introduces herself. She says, I am Dr. Penelope Blake. I am the humanities chair here at Rock Valley College, which basically translates to I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Let's just rename this class in your minds World War II 101, and we will start at like 1939 and go forward. Now, the class itself throughout the entire semester focused very, very little on anything military or what was Mm -hmm. happening in the war, except for how it related to what was happening back home. And so the entire class was spent talking about... um, you know what how the war impacted fashion how it impacted diet how it impacted industry how it impacted sports how it entertainment um because of course you had this entire nation that was dealing with a very different reality right. as this war. you know this and i i really really hate to say it like this this wasn't like you know the war in iraq or the war in afghanistan this was like an all country every single living american was had to be in on this thing. right i mean the reality is that our lives haven't really been that impacted right. personally, right? right? Neither one of us is in the military or married yeah. to a military spouse, right? Right. You know, who's it, there, so we aren't sacrificing. Whereas right. I know, like, my my grandmother told me stories during World War II of using um, an eye pencil to draw lines on her legs mm-hmm. because you were supposed to wear stockings, yeah. but they didn't have any silk. Right. So you would pencil in a, a line to make it look like, because, you know, they, they didn't have silk back home. And it's just, those those kinds of stories fascinate me. Like, right. She wasn't obviously in the war, but was impacted. So, well, and yeah. so much of like uh, the fashion, for example, that's, um, that's where the whole like women's pantsuit right. and that kind of stuff came from, because you had all these women out entering the workplace and they didn't have money or even the the rationing ability to go buy fabric and go buy a new outfit. So all these companies started selling sewing patterns to right. take your husband's suit and convert it. Um, but one of the great things about the class, one of the big projects we had to do is we had to interview 
somebody who lived through that period. Now, it didn't necessarily have to be a veteran. If you could find a veteran, great. But even if it was like an aunt or a great aunt or somebody who was... I didn't necessarily have to be an adult, but don't go interview somebody right. who's three years old. Right, have somebody who can remember right. how they were impacted. And my parents had worked with a gentleman um, who had taught here at Freeport High School. He had long since retired by this point. Uh, but he had been a Navy corpsman, a medic, during World War II, and specifically was stationed at Pearl Harbor. Hmm. Um, and so I reached out to him. He's extremely gracious and, you know, let me come to his house and interview him. And the, the professor's whole mindset behind this was is, sit face to face with somebody who lived through this and have them tell it in their own words so you understand because we have this tendency to like look at historic history almost abstractly right like it's just still pictures and marble statues and did any of it really happen or are we just being told this um and even though i was like you know was a like cognizant that we do that still there was something about sitting there and having him tell me and and he of course he talked quite a bit about the actual attack on pearl harbor because he was there when that happened but the thing he talked about the most is he said you know you think the attack on pearl harbor and how terrible that was he's like it was terrible and if anybody is aware of the history or has even seen the the movie pearl harbor and the hospital that's there that the Kate Beckinsale character works as a, a nurse at, um, he was stationed at that hospital. Oh, okay. um, and he said, yeah, the, the attack was terrible when it's like you're trying to bring patients in and these Mitsubishi Zeros are coming down and strafing the streets. And he said, but in reality, the thing that you need to think about is that after that happened, it was literally weeks upon weeks on end afterwards of having patients who were just in stretchers out in the yard and everywhere. You know, you had patients who, you know, would have broken bones or bullet wounds who never set foot inside the hospital because there's no room and just, just how jam packed it was. Um, so it was, to me, that was, it gave a, a greater connection and it, it sort of felt like, and again, another segue, years ago went down to um went down to springfield and it, a year how many years ago was it it might have been like 10 years ago that the tornado came through here and they had mm-hmm. a whole bunch of damage i remember um they had a whole bunch of people who were displaced from their homes and were staying in hotels in springfield and i remember checking into it we were down there for completely different reasons obviously we checked into this hotel and the <laughs> i remember the lady at the counter telling me she's like yeah, because at the time, Rob Lagojevich was governor. He's like, yeah, Rob Lagojevich came down here to see the damage, and everybody had to show him before pictures because he spent so little time down here because he had made his office in Chicago. But anyway, went to where uh, Abraham Lincoln is buried. Mm, okay. And there's this you know big like rotunda thing with the tower over it, and it's got this wrought iron gate around it that's normally locked and shut and everything. Um, but due to the damage for cleaning out, they had the gate open, and there was nobody around. And it was really weird to just like walk into this like dank room and place your hand on a sarcophagus and know that Abraham Lincoln's inside there. It's, a, I don't know, to me it was really surreal. It was kind of like, like this person I've heard so much about in all these stories that in your mind just sort of becomes a character. Right, that, to think to like, of them as an actual person. Yeah, to put your hand on something and know like their bones are literally inches from your hand was really, really, really weird. Anyway, that's my spiel about <laughs> not living history or in this case, non-living history, but... Right. So, um, sociology, anthropology, what else do you teach? Is that pretty much? I mean, that's pretty, you know, within sociology, I teach a couple different classes, including mm-hmm. our, our death and dying class. Oh, yes. We had a long talk about yeah. this over, over coffee. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll definitely give the floor to you, but we had just, 
just a couple weeks ago, um, my parents' beloved Corgi Addie had to be put mm. to sleep. Um, she she had lived her life, you right. know. That's all there was to it, and it was it was interesting because for my daughter, who's seven years old, that was her first time dealing with a death that she recognized. Like she had she had a, a great grandparent who died a couple of years ago. But at the time, she was young enough that it was kind of like. Okay, everybody's in black and they're sad. I don't really like right. understand. Maybe somewhere in the back of her mind, it's not someone in a daily presence in her yeah. life. Yeah, a dog usually. Yeah, or and she, um, so she dealt with it pretty hard, and it was kind of it was kind of interesting watching her sort of process through this thing, where it's like now every once in a while, you know, on social media or somewhere, she'll still see a picture of the dog, and she kind of gets sad. She says, you know, she actually said this to me the other day. She said because you know, she was looking through my phone, um, and there's a picture in there of of the dog of Addie. And she kind of got real quiet and she just said to me, you know, now I just try to think about the good times. And I'm like, you know, for being seven years old, you're going to make me cry, you know, so. Yeah, wow. Yeah. (laughs) But so, and I think you and I talked about this when we were out for coffee. I think that the way people deal with death has a lot to do with their first experience with it. Yeah, I think that first experiences can really shape uh, how we process deaths from there on out we actually we had to put our our awesome dog to sleep this mm. past march oh i'm um, sorry and that was i mean for our daughter you know the first uh sort of non-abstract kind of death mm-hmm. and so that was that was rough yeah but, uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose teaching a class like that you get a lot of varied experiences and emotions surrounding it and yeah, I mean, I think, and it always depends on what students are bringing to the class. Yeah. Um, for most of the more traditionally aged students, they may have pet loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, some may have grandparent loss, but that's typically it. Mm-hmm. And some of them haven't even had that yet. Um, right. You know, their childhood dog might still be alive. <laughs> um, and other students, especially non-traditional students, I mean, I've, I've had students who lost children. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's got to be the hardest. Yeah. And that's so when I teach the class, we kind of uh, and, and it's a sociology class. So it's not like a personal support group kind of thing. Right. It sometimes feels that way. But, yeah. um, you know, I kind of talk about different losses and how our social ties shape how we grieve. Mm. And I, I structured it this semester where we, we kind of start with pet loss and then work our way to child loss. So we've, yeah. we've talked about maybe ones that are less um, difficult to talk about, although pet loss is sometimes more difficult for people than, <laughs> yeah. than humans, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, but it's definitely, you know, I think for me, you know, my first my first loss, other than, you know, like a goldfish, which I figure every every kid is... Every time you come home from the fair, two days right, later. Right, yeah. That's And yeah, you didn't really get close. I never <laughs> I never got to know, what was her name? Beauty. Yeah. Uh, Beauty the fish. But, um, you know, my mom passed away when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And so that shapes a lot. Oh, and yeah. it's also shaped a lot with how I address that with my daughter. Because... Mm-hmm. You know, kids are smart, and yeah. and they figure out, you know, pretty quickly that uh, when I talk to grandma and grandpa, I call one of them dad, mm-hmm. and one of them by their first name. Yeah. And, you know, so she was like, well, you know, kind of asking some questions, like, uh, 
and where's your mommy? Yeah. And it's it's hard because I don't want to terrify her, right? When you're a kid, your parents are not supposed to die. Yeah, they're gods. That's kind yeah. of a big security thing. Yeah. Um, but I also have to be honest with her and tell her, like, when I was a kid, my mom died. Yeah. Um, and she's asked me some questions about why, and I talk about, like, never smoke. Mm-hmm. Um and things like that. But yeah, it's it's kind of hard. But sometimes she, she'll come up with really profound things. Like, so she was asking me questions about her grandma June um, and what she looked like. And I was like, well, you know, she actually had kind of curly hair like you do, but she had brown eyes like I do and this and that. And she goes, so she was a little bit you and a little bit me. And I, I just almost had to pull over because I was yes. like crying in the car, like that's right, sweetheart, yes. you know. And so, um, yeah, kids are sometimes able to like cut through things in a in a really yeah cool way. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really she wants to go to the cemetery to visit my mom. Yeah. Um, we went to the cemetery where my grandparents are buried on what was my grandmother's birthday. Right. And that was kind of an interesting thing to try to explain, you know what this is and mm-hmm. how people are buried and you know this sort of thing and uh, and so when our when our dog died you know i remember her asking me if it would hurt for her to be put in the ground mm-hmm. and i was like well no she can't feel anything you know yeah and so she was concerned and then you know i, I was Trying to explain because our dog was cremated. Um, yeah. You know, how that all worked. And we had a very nice family ceremony and we all said something we'd miss about Roxy. And mm-hmm. hers was that Roxy always ate her toast crust. Yes. Um, it's always those. Yeah. yeah. I, I was saying, I was like, I always thought I was a really awesome housekeeper. Yeah. Uh, until our dog died. And yeah. And then you're like, what? I was like, why is this floor a total mess every day? So much shit on Every floor. meal is just a mess. And I realized the dog just cleaned up. Man. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But it's, it's a hard class to teach sometimes. I can imagine. But it's also, I think, a really important class and, and sometimes fun in yeah. a weird way. Yeah. I suppose it can be emotionally liberating for some people who are yeah. sort of like, you know, I've kind of had this on my mind, but it's not something you randomly bring up in conversation with a friend or a family. No. Member. I don't usually just at dinner parties go, and my mom died when I was a kid. Right. Like, that's yeah. usually a conversation ender. Just in um, class and podcasts. Right. Yeah, exactly. Up. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but it is actually interesting for me because this year was 30 years mm-hmm. since she died and moving back here yeah. has been an interesting shifting in my grief process mm-hmm. um, in, in ways I never anticipated when I took really? a job and moved back to Freeport. Moved back to the hometown. Yeah, never thought mm-hmm. that that was, that was going to be what would happen. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I really... A lot of things have shifted, and and it's been very healing. That's good. Um, but it's just kind of a strange thing. Yeah, we kind of have this weird way, <clears throat> and you know, like if you if you get hurt, if you get stabbed, and I don't mean by an angry person, but you know, you run into a, a kitchen knife or a piece of yard implement, and it, you know, it sort of heals and scabs and scars over and everything. I, I don't think we recognize how much we do that mentally, because we just sort of like. You know, we we tend to take trauma and just kind of bury it and right. bury it and bury it and bury it, and then and then one day you're like, why can't I function? Why is this bothering <laughs> me so much? Why is this little right. little little thing getting to me so much? Um, well, and I think too we have this, and and a lot of people don't realize the um, 
Kubler-Ross five stages of grief that are right. so often thrown around weren't developed to describe grieving people. Mm-hmm. They were developed to describe terminal patients accepting their diagnosis. Uh-huh. So the end point of acceptance was basically you were dead. Yeah, There was not a lifelong process. And I think more recent research on grief has kind of shown that grief doesn't go through these stages and then we're like, okay, you're good. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, because I, I think for a long time, I thought there would be this point where I would just, it would be like my mom had never died. Yeah. And like, that's absurd to think like, mm. I'm never, like, I'm going to spend my life having a grief process over this. Yeah. Um, just because I'm able to get out of bed and function doesn't mean I'm not grieving and mm-hmm. will continue to grieve. And I think the same with certain traumas. It's not going to be a matter of this never happened. Right. It's more, you know, I've, I've, it's part of my life. Yeah. And I, I think that's very, very true. And it's funny. It's like, it's almost like you get the feeling those stages are like levels. And once right. you hit level five, you're enlightened. And now it's no right. longer you're an good. issue. And you've healed. Yeah. And you're fine. Where in reality, it's a giant right. ball that's always pulsating and evolving inside and doing weird things. And it's always, yeah, coming to terms with that different kind of stuff. I, year, a while back, I was in a, and I know you and I have talked about this. I was in a fairly abusive relationship and it's kind of interesting where I, I sort of felt like after I got out of that relationship that like over a period of time, it just wouldn't matter anymore. Right. And now we're like almost a decade removed from it. And still every once in a while, something bubbles up some kind of, you know, and I was, it was funny how it took years until after that relationship was over for me to recognize the fact that it had, you know, left me with some anxiety and some issues that, you know, it's good to eventually realize where that's coming from because right. then, then you can deal with it. But to believe that just, you know, it's something that just goes across the sliding scale and that once it hits a certain point, it's gone. And then you never, ever have to worry about it. And it's it like anymore. it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I can't imagine, just like you were saying, I can't imagine anybody um, who would ever be in a situation where they lost a child where they're ever okay Just, again. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, they may look normal, may act normal, may go to work and smile and laugh and enjoy spending time with their friends. At the end of the day, I'd have to imagine that's kind of one of those. Well, that there's always going to be times where it bubbles up more than others. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I know for me, knowing that there are certain, you know, dates like my mom's birthday or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, knowing that that might be tough for me, I can plan accordingly right whereas i think before i would just try to pretend i'm not having a hard time yeah it's fine <laughs> yeah, it's fine I'm good yeah um and now i'm just like yeah you know what i need people to be kind to me today so right. <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> in fact this year for the anniversary um you know of my mom dying i i just was i kind of had to take a deep breath and say all right honey keep our child alive. I'm going to go for a drive for a little bit. Yeah. I ended up out at Oakdale hiking. Oh, okay. Um, you know, which, and as somebody who listens to like true crime podcasts, I realized as I parked my car and went off into the woods alone, I'm like, I should have told someone where I was going. This is where um, you die. Right, like, <laughs> this is how all of those missing podcasts start. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, note to self, yeah. you know, or at least enable my phone GPS yeah. to, to be trackable yeah no kidding (laughs) so it's like oh but yeah so just knowing you know that there's Mm. gonna be times like i i used to really beat myself up over not somehow being over being assaulted in college yeah and it it kind of clicked um as you know a lot of this me too stuff has been causing things to bubble up and i found when the um 
just recently with the Supreme Court uh, yeah. hearings and the testimony and all that, I I was angry. Yeah. Like uh-huh. super angry. Not like, you know, I didn't lash out at anybody and right. I still went to work and did, you know, mm. what do you have to do as a grown up? But I was just pissed. Yeah. And and I kind of stopped and was like, maybe that's normal. Like maybe rather than thinking I'm broken because I have a human response. Right. I should just be like, I'm normal. Like yeah, something terrible happened, and I'm pissed about it when something reminds me of that. Right. And, you know, there's yeah. probably going to be times the rest of my life, no matter how well-adjusted I get, yeah. that if something is big in the news or something happens to a friend or whatever, I'm just going to feel things. Yeah, you know, that's just going to hit home That's big That's time. human humanity. Well, and that whole swearing-in process got so sideways. And I mean, for good reason. I'm not saying that, right. like, okay, we could have done without that. So, like, it was good that it brought a lot of, you know, things yeah. to the forefront. Um, there's, I, I guess it always bothers me whenever there's, um, um, and, and I have a different view on this now. I, I'm going to admit, like, obviously being a male and being raised a male and growing up in a male-around-me society, that my, my, I, it was one of those things where I always thought for the longest time, like, okay, that's not okay. This is not okay. That's not okay. There are things you shouldn't do. There are blah, 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 blah. Um, but it was always just kind of like a list of rules in the back of my head. Um, but it was interesting how much it changed when I had a daughter. And I began thinking like... Well, you, you probably start thinking about ways you treated people that were pretty normal yeah and if anybody did that to your daughter you're yeah. like, i would mess with yeah them, right and and yeah i think for unfortunately many men don't think about the world women live in until they have a daughter yeah yeah and then all of a sudden it occurs Find to that them out. that like the women in their lives were somebody's daughter too right, right? like yeah. and and it's sad that, right, like, we should just be able to see, like, this is a human being, you know, regardless of their relationship to a guy, right? <laughs> right. doesn't matter that it's somebody's daughter. Right. That's just a Treat person. Treat like a human being. Right. Yeah. But, but a lot of, I think, you know, just because of the society we have, yeah. men are often discouraged from seeing women as fellow human beings yeah. until they're in a situation where they're suddenly like, oh, somebody treated my daughter the way I treated women. Right, yeah. I'm upset. Um, yeah. Well, and I always sort of felt like, you know, you'd, you'd grow up and I'd sort of, and I'm sure that there are exes out there who disagree with me on this, but I like to feel I never like overly, you know, I, I was never ver- verbally or physically abusive with anybody I ever dated. Um, I kind of had the, the thing going for me where I, I grew up in a house with a mother, a very strong willed mother and <laughs> who I love dearly. I don't, I don't mean anything about that. And, um, two older sisters who were both right. very, very independent and both very strong and, you know, very outspoken and driven. And, um, so, you know, you, you kind of therefore sort of grow up with this sort of view, you know, I, I guess that you don't, I'm trying to figure out how to quantify this. Um, basically you don't end up with sort of like the classic chauvinistic view of like, you just need to make a sandwich right. and shut up, you know, right. because I had three women in the house who could beat my ass in a heartbeat, you know? So you right. if you would ask any of them to make you a sandwich, they probably would have. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause they're good people. Um, but, uh, you know, but growing up, you, you know, you'd kind of have friends or people that you were aware of who were guys who you knew were kind of assholes. Right. You know, they kind of like, Oh yeah, he was dating so-and-so. And then he was, a, isn't it kind of funny? He's such a jerk. You know, that, that was really like the, the big thing to come to terms with like, 
like, no, that's really not okay. Like, you kind of laugh about it when you're growing up. Part of it is you're an adolescent yourself. You're right. not viewing, you know, the whole world. You're just kind of, yeah, this is this is my buddy. He's kind of cool. We laugh and we joke. And, yeah, sometimes he can be kind of a dick to his girlfriends. But whatever, that's him, man. You know, right. and then you look back on it. Now I'm like, what if my daughter ends up dating one of these assholes? You know, you don't want to, be, uh, and it's, it's, you don't want to be the over-domineering parent. No, and you have to trust your yeah. kids. So yeah. So you can't. Yeah. So I'm going to teach her how to skin an animal so that... I suggest karate, <laughs> but, you know, teach their own. Right. Um, because you, you, don't, yeah. you don't want to be that dad who is waiting at the door to meet the guy holding a shotgun. Right. You know. That's, and that's, you know, my husband and I have co- had conversations about, um, you know, unfortunately, the reality of child sexual abuse. Yeah. Uh, and where we used to live, I, I don't know what the schools are like here, but there was a... A rash of teachers at the high school having relationships with the students. Yeah. And it was very normalized in that community. Oh. Like. And where was this? In, in Maryland. Oh. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was just strange that people weren't more outraged by yeah. this. And, and so, you know, we had this conversation and I said, you know, I'll, I think all we can do is try to raise her in a way so that if something happens, she's comfortable telling us. Yeah. Because that seems to be, like, you can't protect, like, I, I know people that are like, I would never let my kid go to a sleepover. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, sleepovers and camp and stuff, that was the best part of childhood. And yeah. it, it creates independence, right? right? Like, I learned to do a lot of things yeah. by not having my parents hovering over me. And, mm-hmm. and one day, you want your kids to be independent. And it's nice if, you know, it's before they're 18, so they aren't just out there not having any clue how to do this. Right. But... You know, I get the very real threat, right? Like, if they're at a sleepover, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. What are the parents like? What are the siblings like? What are the parents' friends like? Yeah. There could be a lot of people in contact with your mm-hmm. kid that you've never met. Yeah. Um, and, and I was saying, I, I, I just feel like somehow teaching her to, that it's, you know, no matter what the person says, it's okay to tell them no, get away from me, and right. then tell us. Yeah. Like, no matter what they tell you, mm-hmm. to the contrary. Yeah. Um, because that's really the best we can hope for, because, yeah. you know, we can't just protect her. And the same with, you know, you think about people who might treat your, your daughter poorly. Yeah. You kind of just have to hope to raise her in a way so that, if she needs help, she comes to you. Yeah, and uh, and can and and you know and and to recognize that sometimes shitty things happen even when you're a strong person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's one thing in in working on you know dealing with being assaulted. Uh, you know, I was reading testimony, you know, stories from from other women who were talking about you know I like. I know self-defense, and I, I, but I was so surprised that this person was acting in this way. It wasn't like I was going to yeah. poke their eyes out, you know, mm-hmm. and, and things were like, you almost blame yourself more. Yeah. Like, why, did, why, why didn't I fight back? Right. Um, rather than recognizing, like, you, you did what your, you know, instincts tell you to do. Yeah. Uh, in most situations like that, it's freeze, not, mm-hmm. not fight or flight. Right. Um, so I, you know, I hope to, to somehow instill in my daughter that if something bad happens come talk to me yeah uh, rather than that was yeah i guess the big personal revelation that i had when the whole kavanaugh thing was going on because i was um 
having several conversations with Renee. You know Renee. Yeah. Um, to those of you who aren't in the know, like um, and hi Renee, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> which I'm gonna send this. I'm gonna send her a copy of this to her. She's uh, she's a chemistry professor out in uh, California right now. But we were having a conversation about this when the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing was going on, and I had just kind of half you know mentioned to her. Of course, you're in the you know I'm looking at this from the dad perspective, so you're having the like male Neanderthal protect the tribe and I'm just like I'm so angry I'm like so help me God if I ever found out anybody treated my daughter this way I would be you know bathing the stallways with their blood that's all you know and you just rage 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 and she really brought me back down to earth and she said you really need to not only say that you need to completely can that attitude because if your daughter grows up believing that you're going to go off like a shotgun right. if she, she tells you tell anything, you. she won't tell you. No. You know, you need to, you know, obviously you need to basically project, yes, the protector, but also the confidant and somebody who's right. there for you and isn't going to blame you and isn't going to make a huge public scene. Because that's one of the things that, and the it, of course, you're way more read up on this than I am. <laughs> but one of the things that I... Um, came across as a, a lot of women who were talking about how one of the things that they deal with is whenever there's any kind of assault, whether it's extremely minor, is that there's sort of this mindset of not wanting to make a fuss over it. Right. You know, um, and it, for me, that it was kind of one of those things where once I was able to look at it from that perspective, it made a lot of sense. Like, you don't want to be the person like, you're literally just going about your day and just wanting to do stuff and something happens and you don't want the world to stop and suddenly pay attention to you and what's going on. But on the other hand, it did kind of happen. Right. So. And, um, and I think, too, one of the things that while the protector instinct might be coming from a good place, <laughs> you know, you have to keep in mind somebody has just had their interests and desires completely neglected right. by another person. So if they tell you something and they're like, but I don't want you to kill them and you go off and get, you basically you, violated them again. Yeah, right? exactly. You basically said you don't matter. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's, you know, again, if, and that's a mistake a lot of people make, like if a friend is like, oh, I'll kill the guy or whatever. It's like, well, no, if, if the person, you know, you, you can't really tell someone you have to report this to the police or you have to do this. Yeah. You have to let them yeah. do what they feel is best because, I mean, they just had an experience where what they wanted didn't matter to somebody. Right. Well, and I, I, I recognize that it, it's a unique situation whenever we're dealing with, um, I guess, crime or law and order where it's, there's, where it obviously doesn't get reported. Right. And my first instinct is to say, well, it doesn't get reported near as much as it should. But on the end, on the on the other hand, it's kind of like, as someone who's a guy, I have to like mentally put myself in that headspace of being in that position of feeling violated. And you know, I remember like being much younger, like early teens, and watching like Law and Order SVU, and just thinking to myself, "Don't get a shower, you dumb woman! Don't you? Oh, well, look what you did!" No, but then it's like you get older and you start putting yourself in that headspace, and it's like I completely understand it, like. I've been violated. Nobody in the world knows this happens. I want to just take a shower and feel clean and go about my life and try to put this behind me, which you find out later isn't necessarily that easy. Um, well, and our, you know, our, our court system doesn't have a very good record of, you know, 
actually so a lot of people might feel like why would i put myself through yeah that circus that scrutiny yeah when most of the time there's only two witnesses to these crimes right and they're telling a different story yeah you Mm -hmm. know one's the perpetrator one's the victim and they have different stories that they're telling and there's no i mean oftentimes the evidence is that sex happened right and it's the stories that are trying to determine Mm -hmm. was it a crime that's an uphill battle. I yeah. mean, it's really hard. So, and also, you know, a lot of times, just because something isn't illegal doesn't mean it isn't wrong. Right. Right. And there's a lot of areas where we see things that shouldn't have happened. Yeah. But it's not like a prosecutable offense. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of times I can see, you know, if somebody's just groped or something like that where they're like I'm not going to bother yeah. trying to make a case out of this yeah. I'd just rather go about my yeah my life and try to put this behind me mm-hmm. that's yeah and I can understand and that, that was one of the things that I guess drove me absolutely insane when the whole Kavanaugh thing was going on and I dude I feel absolutely terrible I cannot remember a name because I'm terrible with names um, but the woman who was primarily testifying mm-hmm. against them and the, of course, and of course, anytime this is obviously politically charged because this is right. clearly became a right left thing. It did, and um, I mean, in a similar way, Anita Hill's testimony, yeah. Clarence Thomas became a, a lightning rod. Yeah, you know, of, yeah, of, yeah. And uh, and so, of course, you had a very large contingent of people who were. She's doing this for attention, blah 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 blah, and it's like this isn't the this kind. This is the of, worst attention you this could is have. Not the, yeah. you're, you're, she's literally reliving a trauma right. from how many years in the past. She was getting death threats. Yeah. She had to move out of her house, and I just I, it was just like two days ago. There was an article that I read that even now she's still getting death threats, uh, yeah. and it's like for what? Like the only she gained nothing positive out of it except for in her own mind knowing she did the right thing. You know, she didn't get, like, a multi-million dollar movie deal out of it or Lifetime movie or, you know, it's not like she was a nobody from nowhere and she's going to walk away from this with $150 million. Right. She had her life that she was living. Yes. And from what I can tell, a pretty successful Mm -hmm. life. She's a professor, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's been upended. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know that I would have that courage. I mean, that takes a lot of guts to be willing... To testify yeah. um, for a solid couple of weeks, basically right. being a household name with half the people who are who know your name hate your guts. Right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's um, the uh, see once again I <laughs> I get something in my head and then you say something that makes my brain go another way. That, that I guess I, I sort of feel like is it possible that there are people out there. Who would claim things? Because if we're going to play devil's advocate with this, are there people out there who would fabricate something in order to get something from it? And I feel like, yes. I mean, has it ever happened? Sure. Ever? Sure. Statistically, is it likely? No. Not really. Well, and I sort of feel like if it's public, then it's probably true. Because if you really wanted to do that, you'd, you'd like... You'd text Kobe Bryant and be like, $100 million or I'm telling your wife we had sex. It would be more blackmail as opposed to public allegations. Yeah, Yeah, if you don't give me money in your house in Malibu, I'm going to tell everybody you raped me. Right. You know. And, and, you know, that's the thing. I mean, it's hard to know how many non-reported offenses because, you know. They're not reported. We don't have numbers. Um, But the, 
false report rate for rape and sexual assault are, are pretty much in line for any other violent crime. Yeah, it's Like extreme. 2 to 4%. Yeah, it's really low. Um, which, you know, we treat people like they're making it up when those statistics should tell us like 96 to 98% of the time they are not. Right. right? Um do you yeah. do you feel like in this and this is one of those situations where ever since the whole Kavanaugh thing started, I've like been rolling this over my head, and I I tend to take I, I sort of take this path of this whole thing because I'm sure that probably early two thousands, you and I had some like very different discussions than we're having now because I sort of sort of like being the college freshman, I sort of like entered the whole political process like very much on the on the right wing right and i was yeah. for a very long time and eventually one day um the one like sort of opposite thing thing to that is i was really really into science like i just love the whole notion of science and the way it works i i think the scientific yeah. method is one of the greatest creations we've had in human history the discovery of knowledge yeah. and all of that is yes yeah. and i i always like the extremely high-minded ideal that being somebody who can believe something but if you are brought proof as to the contrary, you can be a high-minded enough person to change your mind. And so I decided to, I'm like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do to really make sure to be honest with myself. I'm going to sit down and take every single political belief that I have and run it through the ringer. I'm going to go out there and read every article I can find that argues against the way I feel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look into research over it. And needless to say, in the, in the span of like a couple months, I came out the other side a completely different person. Um and so one of the mindsets that I, that I take when I'm looking at all this and I'm sort of like, we, as I'm trying to analyze this, one of the things I think it, it almost, the problem with rape and sexual assault is we sort of end up sort of like cross purpose where our, our whole judicial system is founded on the concept of someone's innocent until proven guilty. Now we, <clears throat> and obviously a, a rape or a sexual assault allegation can like, severely hurt somebody's life their career right. the younger they are in terms of where they're going on the flip side of it i don't think we should like I, I think anybody who is claiming to be a victim should get the benefit of the doubt i absolutely think that the problem is those two don't can go they don't mesh well right you know i i don't know that our court system is the best place to deal with sexual violence right. and i don't yeah. think you know i mean <clears throat> I think, and this has come out, you know, with a lot of people talking and, and some victims of high profile, like in the, what was it, Brock Turner case and stuff where his his victim, and she just recently came out, so I don't remember her name, like she came out as her real name, mm -hmm. um, you know, saying that, like, she didn't want him to rot in prison. Mm -hmm. And I think, right, like, I think about that and I'm like, I think prison, like, I'm anti-prisons. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that most people should be in prison. Right. And so I find myself in a strange place because on the one hand, I want justice for victims, but I don't know if justice looks like prison sentences. Like right. I think I, I think more of a restorative justice model and, and societal healing, you know, kind of thing is what's needed when we talk about sexual violence. Because, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think anyone comes out of prison a better person than they went in. Right. So I don't think it's really addressing the problem of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not addressing the problem if the vast majority of perpetrators never go in front of a court anyway. Right, yeah. So I think we just need a different societal way of addressing yeah. 
you know, what do we do when there has been this harm? Um, yeah, it makes, and I think the sensitivity of it makes a difference because, you know, when you're looking at the court system, you're looking at a court system that was designed with the idea of, so you claim Mr. Johnson stole three cows. Right. Do you have witnesses? You know, and obviously... Well, and- Rape was a property crime originally. Yeah. I mean, that, it was. And, and, so. and guess what? The, the, the actual victim was not the woman right. in the situation. It was, it was the man. The man who, like, quote unquote, owned her. You violated um, my property. How right. dare you? You've devalued yeah. my property. Right. And, uh, and so it's not shocking that it's ill-equipped. Yeah. To deal with the realities of this. Well, and, you know, the thing is, is in any kind of court case, one of the big things is, you know, the defendant and the defendant's attorney being able to cross-examine the accuser. Right. Which is completely understandable. Like, if you're claiming that I hit your car, my attorney, when you're on the stand, is going to be like, well, what were you looking at? Well, right. what were you thinking? Well, what, why would How you do you think know this? It was him? Yeah, what yeah. is it that you're trying to get out of this? When it's a sexual assault, that's bad. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I, I cannot wrap right. my brain around, like, putting somebody through that who's already been through hell to even get to this point. Right. And then, it, and then now on top of it, it's going to be you're going to have some slick guy in a suit screaming at you, basically claiming that you're a liar. And let's let's face it, a lot of times you're a whore. And well, right. what were you that wearing? You wanted and, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, because so. that's really you know, like I said, typically what what the evidence proves is that sex happened, and the the conversation is over. Was there consent or not? Right. right. Um, and that's. Very difficult to prove yeah. beyond a reasonable doubt, right. um, you know, and, and, and historically, um, most courts kind of viewed that, that rape occurred when more force than is typically necessary was used, mm-hmm. which to me sets up a really jacked up picture of normal sex. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, working on a college campus... I've tried to stress with students that we really need to have a conversation about what healthy sex looks like. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm super concerned that, you know, people are, like, confused. Yeah. Like, I feel like if you're having good sex, you should never, ever, ever be confused right. about whether rape has occurred. Yeah. Did, like, I, did that just get a little rapey? Or was... Right. Like, when, you know, I'm like, if you are having enthusiastically consensual sex there should never be a question of what happened more force than is deemed necessary is that how it's yeah and so like and and that was kind of historically like the assumption was that men needed to use a little force to convince women right which i'm like the fuck (laughs) but this of course is based on a view that you know women don't want sex that they're you know basically just vessels um, Listen, handcuffs are okay, but if you're using date rape drug, that right. might be excessive. I mean, right, cat and nine tails, okay, but yeah. No, so it's one of those where it, it, it denies what? women as sexual beings. What year was this? I can't even, it was, I remember reading it in a, a legal theory textbook I had, uh-huh. a course on, on violence. Sexual violence in the law. Oh my god! And well, some force is going to be yeah, necessary, right? I mean, just was, don't overdo it. It was know? like not that. Like I want to say it was the 1960s that oh, this was one of yeah. the, the judgments that was right. made. It was sort of like this is like the time of like Donna Reed and right. my three like, sons. The assumption and... was you you had to force. But keep in mind, like um, it wasn't until the mid 70s that any states recognized marital rape. So if you were married, but, and and the mid '90s before all the states yeah. recognized marital oh my rape, God. Um, so you know if if you were raped by your spouse, 
there was no crime. Because once you say I do, it's just blanket consent. Oh, God. So again, it gives us, I mean, I think it, it tells us society has a fucked up view of sex and marriage. A little bit, a little and, bit. And that like, we even have to, like, write, like, I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I've i never been confused. Yeah. So, like, basically a guy and a woman could be married and he could basically tie her up, rape the shit oh, out of her. Oh, there are plenty of cases where that happens. She could get free, run to the police and be like, my husband right. raped me. He could hold a gun to her head. Yeah. And the and police would just like, laugh, well, laugh. Like, that's, married. that's not against the law. You, right. you, you bought the farm, yeah. man. Get, right. And still, in some states, if you dig into the law, like you have to be separated or living in separate houses, even if you're still legally married, in order for it to actually be the crime of marital rape. And I'm like, oh my God. that makes no sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Like, I don't. Because of, because of our, our lifespans and the way things accelerate, I think sometimes we don't realize in society how what a short time it is we're removed from that. Right. And in some cases, aren't even entirely yet removed from yeah. that. And I think that's sometimes where you get some pushback. Like, you get somebody who is, you know, and I always take the mindset of, you know, I... I, I I feel both sides of this. And at this point in time, even though I think it relates, I'm kind of, you know, the notion of white privilege. And we all know right, white privilege exists. Right. I mean, there's, there's... I'm a sociologist. So I'm not going to disagree yeah. with you <laughs> There's absolutely no denying it. On the flip side, I can kind of see the guy who is a white male, let's say living here, who's maybe 24, 25 years old. You know, he went to high school. He's out there. He's maybe never had an aggressively racist thought in his entire mind. Right. He's struggling to pay his bills. He's having a hard time finding a job. And now somebody's telling him He's white privileged. privilege is a thing and he needs to shut the fuck up. I can kind yeah. of understand I understand that doing him like... There's a great article uh, called How to Explain White Privilege to a Broke White Person <laughs> that gets at the class aspect because... Please send that you to know, me. We have, we have white privilege. We also have male privilege. We uh -huh. have class privilege. We have heterosexual privilege. We have cisgender like privilege. By calling people white trash. Right. right. So yeah. there's differences. <laughs> you know, no matter what, you're going to have... Your your race is not going to be the obstacle if you're white. Yeah. But it doesn't mean there are no obstacles. You know, right. The way I put it is, it's not like life is all sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. It's that that is not going to be something that gets in your way. Right. Because of the way privilege works. Yeah. Um... You know, but most of us have cat. We belong to more than one category. Yeah. You know, like I have white privilege, but I'm a woman. Yeah. Um. You know, and things like that. So, yeah, we have we have different categories. So, do you think it works if I just like say that we all just need to agree that we're in one giant shit show and we need to work together and figure this out? Because well, <laughs> and it probably would. You know, uh, we we might not all be in it together, but the majority of us are. Yeah. Common, you know, have That's enough fair. commonalities. The, mm -hmm. the ninety-nine percent. Yeah. Um, you know. The ninety-nine percent. Yeah. You know, I, I always point true. out that while a lot of professors don't really think of themselves as workers, at the yeah. end of the day, I sell my labor power. Yeah. I do not have factories I own or right. any, any items of wealth that the wealthiest yeah. classes do. You're not sitting um, at home drinking wine while you're. Continually I, you know, rise. my life, my, I have a lot of class privilege in that my day-to-day -day does not look like someone making minimum wage. Right. But at the end of the day, we are both selling our time mm -hmm. to somebody yeah. to get money in to have our lives. Order. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, so in that way, I think there's there's a commonality that we often don't see. Yeah. Uh, because, it, you know, we're busy fighting over the slice of pie rather than pointing out, like, but there's a whole other pie over yeah. there. Yeah. That yeah. nobody's giving us access to. And it's that's one of the things that has cracked me up is that and it's been continually done throughout history where it's like if the where the super rich can be like, you know, if we can get everybody below us to oh. be mad at each other, 
we'll, right. we'll just pick their pockets and nobody oh, will, yeah. nobody will even know. You know, I, I had this big discussion with someone um, not that long ago regarding the Civil War in the South and this thing today about people still riding around with the Confederate flag and it's like okay as an American I understand the rebel spirit I understand the revolutionary spirit I understand the F you to authority but if there's any part of you that doesn't think that the Confederate flag is racist you do not understand our history and the thing that baffles me about this is the most thing is that when you really look at what the Civil War was the Civil War was the richest top percentage of Southerners protecting their business interests by getting the poor people to fight a war for them. Mm -hmm. And now hundreds of years later, the descendants of people who fought that war are still proud of the fact that their ancestors fought in that war and ultimately lost, you know? Right. And it is also strange to sport the flag, you know, to say you're an American, but support the flag of a... Yeah. Uh, decidedly anti-American, right? Like they were the ones who wanted to say "f you, America." We're going to form our own country. They were, so, if you were to politically you know. classify it, they were a political insurrection that led to the death of half of quarter of a million United States Army troops. Right. More than World War One and World War Two right. combined. Yeah. More U.S. soldiers. Right. You know, we 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 going on, on and on about how yeah. we got to support the troops, and I do agree with that. I'm not arguing with that. Right. But when you're talking about a situation that happened where I guarantee you that the guy from Freeport, Illinois, who went and fought in the United States Army and died at the Battle of Gettysburg, thinks it's cool that you're driving down a street of his hometown with a Confederate flag on the back oh, of your pickup truck. Yeah, that's not okay. Like, let's let's yeah. get the larger view of this. And, um, yeah. yeah I, and it was kind of one of those things where it hit me sideways because when I first got interested in history, it was... It was because of the Civil War. I was just supremely interested in the Civil War and from a military aspect and everything. And um, the historiography of the Civil War has sure changed over the last couple of years because I originally came in with the thought of like, yeah, it was a disagreement, but at the end of the day, they were both fighting for what they believe in and there was honor and there was valor here. And um, and so I, you know, for a long time, I've got, I've literally got a whole like two whole bookshelves in my basement. It's nothing but books on the Civil War. I think I've got like one shelf of them that's literally just books on the Battle of Gettysburg. I mean, th this is how deep I got with this. And then it kind of got to the point where like over the last couple of years, you start seeing news clips of them like tearing down Confederate statues. And I kind of had to have a moment. At first, I'm like, what are you doing that for? Like the guy's been dead for a hundred. What, 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 he was. It, right. And then I go around in my brain and I'm like, I, I, I've got no fucking logical argument. Right. I got, I got nothing to argue against it. I, I get it if you're somebody who's of especially of slave descent living right. in the south in well and again it's we we don't have like statues of people who were against <laughs> us like right. we don't have a saddam hussein statue in this country no no we you don't know? yeah we, we don't there's no statue um, to king george no, no we're not yeah. we don't do that mm -hmm. uh and and also you have to look at the time period when most of those statues were resurrected. Yeah. Or were erected, I should say, not resurrected. They didn't bring them to life. Um, <laughs> but when most of those statues were put up, it was a period where the South was definitely sending a message yeah. of, yeah. you know, putting putting people in their place. Yeah. It was not a neutral, we just want to honor this great military thinker. Yeah. 
Well, it was it was very deliberate. And so much of it was funded by the Daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah. You know, and there was this big, you know, there was always the age-old saying that the victor writes the history. And the American Civil War was the one situation where that wasn't true. Right. Like, and a lot of, I mean, we could literally do a whole other podcast about why it, things ended up this way. But there was sort of like a, you know, the war's over, leave the South alone. And right. they sort of rebuilt themselves in their own image. And right. there became this this lost cause mythology that they never had a shot at winning the war anyway. But right, was, they were the underdog. Yeah. Even though... Never mind the fact that up, really up until Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, basically put out the presidential edict releasing the, the you know, the... What was it called? The Emancipation Yeah, there it was. There it was. <laughs> I'm like, you mean yeah. the Emancipation Party? Yeah, yeah, I was about to say Manifest Destiny, and I'm like, that doesn't that sound doesn't. right at all. But uh, until he put that out, I mean, we were literally three seconds away from right. the British getting involved on the southern side of this thing. And that would have totally, because their textile industry was collapsing right. without cotton from the south. Um, yeah. And, you know, so anyway, after the war, they were like, you know... One of the big things that they've had going down there for a long time is right now, like in the north, especially like here in Illinois, where it's like district by district where they decide what the textbooks are going to be. For a long time in the south, there was like one small council that would decide what textbook they were going to use for the entire state. Right. So if these textbook companies could get it written a certain way so that these people would like the way it viewed the south during the Civil War right. and slavery. And slavery, yeah, it existed and it was bad. Right, we had sort of the, what was it, uh, that Disney movie, Song of the South. Yeah, oh my um, God. You want to... <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we we got a big Disney collection for my daughter that has like every Disney movie for like 50 years or whatever yeah. but man I was just like some of Whoa. these I'm like and trash that one yeah because I'm just like we are never watching yeah and even like Dumbo I was like I forgot the totally racist stereotypes yeah for the crows there yeah Jim Crow Jim Crow um mm -hmm. over my head as a kid but now as an adult I'm like wow yeah and given that my daughter recently asked me why all the princesses have peach skin um oh dear here we go and I, I had to point out Moana and Tiana yeah and Pocahontas and Mulan I'm like there are you know yeah women who wear beautiful dresses and have different colored skin. Yeah, um, we're but, getting there. <laughs> but, yeah, I know, I'm like, it's it's not parody, but you yeah. know, I'm like, well, at least, you know, I have something to point to, but it was just, I know she picks up these things, yeah. right? So I'm like, I'm definitely not, we're not watching some of these from the 40s. Yeah. I'm like, eh. Um, well, I remember when Moana, and I like, it, of course, being a parent, I've become well-versed in Disney movies. And right. to this day, Moana is one of my favorites oh. of like of the past like 10 years or so. Um, my son watches it every night when he goes to bed. It's his right. favorite movie. But I remember, and I, I still don't know how I feel about it, there's a bit of a row when that movie came out because, of course, because it's Disney, all of the marketed stuff has to come along with it. So along comes all these Moana Halloween costumes. Yeah. And it's like, is it just being a fan of the movie or is it I, culture appropriation or is it just an eight-year-old wanting a Snickers right. and that's their favorite movie? And, you know? and yeah, and how to address that. Because yeah. I know I was really relieved last year when my daughter wanted to be um, Elsa from Frozen mm -hmm. because I was like, whew, you know, at least I don't have to navigate that. Yeah. Um, that barrier, and I think you know, especially with kids, you can have a culturally sensitive. I mean, right? Like, I always tell my students, you know, a person's ethnicity should not be your costume. Mm -hmm. And if you're dressing up as a specific person from a different culture, 
you should be clever enough to not have to change your skin tone. Right. right? Like, I'm like, I think, like, if I wanted to dress up as Michael Jackson, yeah. I feel like I could pull off that costume to have people look at me. Well, late Michael and get Jackson, it. definitely. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, you know, I could wear something that would indicate who I am right, without. Yeah being like crossing this line into offensiveness (laughs) and i feel like it's the same with moana like you could you can dress up or you know without right doing it in an offensive way and and letting kids just be kids right um but yeah i mean there are certain things that i think for example there was a a maui t-shirt or something that the skin color you know, because he has the tattoos and it, yeah. it came with like a dark skin as yeah. opposed to just being a clear material that would put tattoos, tattoos on, on your you. kids, you know, whatever color skin right. they have. Um, and I'm like, yeah, they probably could have done that, you know. Well, it's always, better. it's always, I remember when I was, when we were at St. Joe's and I want to say I was in fifth grade and we each had, we had to do a book project and we had to like pick somebody we liked throughout history and do a report on them and then we had to present the report right. to the class and in so doing what we did we also had to dress up as that person i do recall having to dress up as various historical figures yes. it, all i'm going to say is that you didn't have any understanding of course this is st joe's i don't think there was a single african-american kid in our entire school at this time we i ha- i i know oh I had, yeah 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 um, i'm we, not going to say the name because that'd be rude but right. yeah but yeah we we had at least one child it was very but yes minor and i mean that in a mathematical it's, sense yeah. not in an ethnic yeah. sense but um my one friend was we used to go to his house all the time, and his dad had a thing of a uh, can of black shoe polish. Oh, God. And we used to do it like war paint. You know, right. we, were, we were gonna go out and do army buddies because this was when Rambo and everything was huge. And, and so, anyway, for his report, he decided to do Martin Luther King. Oh, no. And he went round and round and round with his parents because he was like, We're supposed to dress up, and I've got a suit and tie, and I've got this stuff here. I know I can put on my face so I can, you know, and like his parents trying to explain to him, like, You can't do blackface at Catholic school. Right. You like, just, you can't. just can't do blackface anywhere. <laughs> and he's like, But I'm supposed to dress like the person. Like, he remember he was like really, and of right. course, not understanding. And a kid isn't going to understand the history of blackface. Right. Like, yeah. it's not just merely that you're changing your skin color right it's the history behind that which by the way and i think which which christmas is it holiday inn uh don't watch that christmas movie again movie on a list of oh you should watch these lovely christmas movies yeah we're watching it and all of a sudden we're like bing crosby in blackface and that was the least offensive part of that number um because it gets worse from there um you know and things that just passed as okay to, to not to right. i mean right like obviously african americans at the time were like this is not okay but right. to white society people didn't see this was a problem yeah and the history behind why that was used yeah it's it's not something you can really explain to a kid yeah um thankfully the parents were like no you can't do that <laughs> at least they had enough sense to know that was a bad idea right um, right and it's amazing to me how many of these politicians keep showing up in the news that they did black i'm like i i I don't understand because even as a kid i kind of got the impression it was wrong like for for was it justin trudeau was saying that like in the 90s and i'm like no i think by the 90s we'd gotten the memo in white society like this is bad especially once ted danson did it and didn't pull it off it was kind of like whoa that's and honestly i think it might like sheltered little at least racial view that was like the tipping point because that was the first time I'd seen somebody like do blackface and there was a controversy and at first I didn't understand why. And you were like, oh, now I understand. That's not Yeah, true. yeah. It's... And I look back and I think, you know, um, 
like how you know it's, it's just amazing that it did last like i think about Laurence olivier doing um othello yeah and i'm like seriously yeah. there were some amazing black actors who could have taken that role and you thought that was a better option right like, well it yeah Every once in a while I get kind of shocked because like sometimes I'll go back and watch a movie from like the 50s or 60s and the thing that always blows my mind from going back and watching those movies are A, some of the comments, some of the way women and minorities are refused to right. refer to casually, like oh, yeah. it's no big like deal. like it's normal. But the thing that always throws me off the most is the touching. Like how any woman was fair game for oh. some random guy to walk up to a bar and just grab him by the arm and spin him around or, right. you know. Kiss and, them. Or... Yeah, you're like, that was a different time. <laughs> To some Not extent, a good way. though, I will say, as a woman who went to clubs in her 20s, um, there was a lot of unwanted touching. Yeah. It still goes on. Yeah. It's just a little different. Um, yeah. I never made it to the club scene. So. <laughs> but I... I, 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 I you, you, you didn't know. miss much. Really. Yeah, that's what I'm I mean, told. It's, yeah. it's like, yeah, I never got into hair gel and Jaeger, so... You know, I, I sort of joke with people about one of the best things about being an old mom... Um, because keep in mind, when I had my daughter, I was old enough that my medical file said advanced maternal age, <laughs> which makes you feel really good at 35. Right, yeah. um, but, you know, is that I, I don't feel like I missed, like I know I'm not missing anything when I'm in bed mm-hmm. on a Friday night at right. 8 o'clock. Yeah. Like, I'm like, mm, there's, you know, because I mean... My dad used to always say nothing good happens after midnight, and I I didn't believe that. That's true. Until I had my twenties, and yeah. it was like, oh yeah, no, I really should just go home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is nothing I am missing, and no. so I I do think, you know, it, it has made me different as a parent to be an old parent because I didn't. I'm not sitting at home thinking, well, my friends are out or anything that I'm missing something. I'm commiserating with other friends about, you know. Disney or <laughs> potty training or, you know, these sorts yes. of things. Will my kid ever do X, Y, or Z as opposed to, you know, you missed this best club night ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that age, that age thing hits you fast. Like you don't see it coming. It was like, it was back in April, my wife and I, it was our anniversary. And so we decided we were going to go to Galena for a weekend. We got a hotel room and all this stuff. And so we drive out to Galena and we spend, you know, the afternoon walking Main Street and, we stopped into a place and got um, some cheese and some, uh, you know, like summer sausage and all this like nice stuff. And then went to Galena Cellars and got a couple bottles of wine and went back to our hotel room. And we were going to like find a movie to watch and enjoy this wine. And it was like by 930, we were both asleep. Right. We were both just passed the hell out. I know. You know, we went from hanging out at Country Kitchen till five o'clock in the morning to now if I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, I got to pee. I'm like, I might as well stay up. I was going to say, I'm actually usually up at 430 to try to sneak in a workout oh before my, God. my kid is up. <laughs> um, because if I don't do it and get showered and dressed before she's awake, it ain't happening. Right, so, then it's over. So it's yeah. like 4.30 alarm, <laughs> which is why when I said 8, I was like, I can I can do 8 o'clock this morning. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah 7 was, um, I was up at 7, and this was, today was one of those rare occasions where 7 a.m. was awfully early for me. Normally I'm up before that, but um, me and my buddy went, like I said, we went and saw Midway last night. And, right. we, and, and to see it at the time frame we wanted to, we had to drive all the way to Rockford, and it was like a 9 o'clock show. And it was a long movie, so it was almost see, 1 a.m. till I got home. And I, I hardly ever do 9, eight, 9 o'clock movies anymore. Me neither. Which is so yeah. funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there was one time, um, oh, yeah, my, we went to see Elton John recently. Was that good? 
concert. He was great. Yeah. Uh, three hour show. Oh, wow. No opener. Just yeah. him, no breaks. So mm-hmm. you had to like be like, I hope he doesn't play Rocket Man while I'm peeing. Right. Um But you know, it's just kind of funny because like we're we're thinking, you know, we went to dinner and we're thinking about what time the show is and what time are we gonna get back to Freeport and all this, and I was like, you know, there was once a time where, like, I didn't leave the house till 10 o'clock. Yeah. And now I'm kind of pissed I'm not going to be home before 10 o'clock. Yeah, I like, should have my errands done by then. Right, like, mm-hmm. I should be home in my pajamas, not getting ready to, you know. So it was, it was you know, a great show, but it was definitely one of those where I was like, we're going we're gonna to yeah. have a tough day tomorrow because I am going to be exhausted. So. He, Elton John would be one of those. I, last... Uh, I will say, though, we are the kiss of death for any musician, so I'm sorry. Dude. Um... Yeah, because he, and I think it was just a cold, but he canceled like a show the week after we saw him. Um, and this started with Marvin Hamlish. We saw Marvin Hamlish conducting in Milwaukee for New Year's. Uh-huh. And he died like a month later. <laughs> and what's funny is Mike still doesn't know, doesn't know who Marvin Hamlish was or why I was so excited about this. But I was excited. And then Marvin Hamlish dies. Yeah. And then we see Neil Diamond in concert. And like within a few months, he announces he has Parkinson's and is retiring. Do not ever um, go see Pearl Jam We saw The Stones. Thankfully, they're the stones, and well, nothing will kill them. Yeah, exactly. Um, Keith Richards cannot be killed by right. Like weapons. they, they actually might might have died a while ago yeah. and are just still hanging out. But so, but yeah. So the fact Elton John got like the flu or something, we're like, damn it. <laughs> so I won't see if if I go see Pearl Jam, I promise I'll bring you with. Right. So that if something happens to Eddie, at least I can say you were there. Yeah, I was there when it happened. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like the movie Highlander is real. And I sort of feel like Keith Richards and Betty White are the last two. And they're going to outlive all of us. And they will inherit the earth. And they're like the super beings who just, you know. It could be. It could be. I, I get to the point where it's like I'll uh, I'll get home at like 9 o'clock at night after having like two beers or something like that. And I just feel like absolute trash the next day. And then you got Keith Richards. Who, what, what's he like, 117 right now? I don't even know. And he's probably still doing blow every day and drinking constantly. You know, I, I've read that he actually is clean and sober. Oh, really? Yeah, he has been for back. a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, you know, kind of makes sense because if you want to be a rock star in your 70s, you kind of got to, you know, you probably need to yeah. pick up one or two health habits somewhere. <laughs> um it was always one of those, I was like, uh, yeah, some of those, well, Lemmy, if you're familiar from Motorhead, died a couple of years ago. Right. But he was one of those, he was, I think, well into his 50s, 60s and was still, like, binge drinking. But a lot of people close to him said, yeah, he was sick for a long time. He yeah. was just kind of, he was a ride or die kind of guy where it was like, this is who I am and I'm going to, it's going to take me to the end, it's going to take me to the end, which is too bad, but, right. you know. Well, and, you know, I think, I think, you know. A lot of people have some level of addiction that's in there oh, too. I mean, oh it's God, certainly yeah. not like yeah. When, when you're struggling for you know, oh well, sir, you'll live longer if you stop using this. Right. If your attitude is no, well, that it might be a sign that you have a problem. And, and one of the things that's interesting, it seems like some of the people who are throughout throughout human history, like some of the people who are the most fantastic artists who create some of the most amazing art always seem to have these really deep, like, self-destructive tendencies. I mean, whether we're talking about Van Gogh or Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain, right. it's just, it, it seems to me it's like, it's that pain that, that fuels. I mean, one of my, my, one of my favorite musicians, 
uh, James Hatfield from Metallica is in rehab again for like right. the fifteenth time in his life. Of course, he had a really tragic childhood and upbringing. It's what made him driven and so great at what he does. But on the flip side, it leaves you know a lot of demons. those traumas we talked yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say that some of the funniest comedians out there had childhoods. That oh yeah. Just, I mean, I guess it makes sense they're funny because you yeah. either laugh or oh <laughs> or not. That's um, exactly it. I've had yeah. I've had people tell me before they've come from me and they're like Finch. You know what? You're funny. I say no, I'm not. I'm humorous. I was raised too well. I'm not right. fucked up enough to be right. funny. <laughs> you know, you know, Richard Pryor levels of funny yeah. come with, yeah. you know, yeah. some serious, serious damage. If I had a lot of like severe childhood trauma, maybe I'd be headlining my own show at the Apollo tonight instead of doing a podcast in my kitchen at Freeport. So that that's the difference. But but you know, I think that maybe maybe you take the trade off. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. It doesn't make sense to be worth millions of dollars when you're in in pain. Yeah, in rehab and trying to find every vice on the planet to try and hide hide what it is you're doing. Yeah, that you're exactly right. Well, we have plowed through. We have over talked two forever, and, hours. and I yeah. feel like we could keep going. We could, and our listeners are like, "Stop." We but, could. You know. <laughs> it's like Country Kitchen all over right. again. Um, to any of you who are listening who made it this far, thank you. <laughs> and if you push pause multiple times, like I usually don't listen to a podcast in one sitting, right? That's yeah, totally cool. And that's always the interesting thing about podcasts. I've got some podcasts that I listen to that are like a tight twenty-five minutes, and other right. ones that go on for two and a half, three hours, and I'm like, okay, this is going to be a multi-parter for me to get through this one. So. Um, but we are going to stop here. I want to thank Julie again for coming. Thanks and, for having me on, and, and I'm happy to happy to chat anytime. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to hold you to that. So, <laughs> all right, as long well, as there's coffee. Oh yeah, we will always have coffee, and I'll make sure next time. I'm, I'm such an idiot. Like I was on my way home from the movie theater last night. I dropped my buddy Kevin off, and I'm like, I got to go to the store because I am completely out of coffee creamer. So I went at one in the morning to Cub Foods to get coffee creamer, and I come dragging home because I'm like, I don't want to get up in the morning and go do it. Right. Just when you get here to realize. She's a vegan, you moron. <laughs> What'd you go get creamer for? Yeah. See. <laughs> so I'll make sure next time I have the the appropriate well, stuff. The, the so. sugar was good. I I'm I'm okay with the sugar. Oh, good, 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 good. All right, we're out of here, folks. Thank you uh, so much for listening. Bye, bye.